Chapter 5 Binary Intervention Government Expenditures When writers on public finance and political economy reach the topic of government expenditures, they have traditionally abandoned analysis and turned to simple institutional description of various types of governmental expenditure. In discussing taxation, they engage in serious analysis, faulty as some of it may be, but they have devoted little attention to a theoretical treatment of expenditure. Clement L. Harris, in fact, goes so far as to say that a theory of government expenditure is impossible, or at least non-existent. The bulk of discussion of expenditures is devoted to describing their great proliferation, absolute and relative, in the last decades, coupled with the assumption, implicit or explicit, that this growth has been necessary to cope with the growing complexities of the economy. This slogan, or similar ones, have gained almost universal acceptance, but have never been rationally supported. On its face, the statement is unproved, and will remain so until proved. Broadly, we may consider two categories of government expenditures, transfer and resource-using. Resource-using activities employ non-specific resources that could have been used for other production. They withdraw factors of production from private uses to state-designated uses. Transfer activities may be defined as those which use no resources, that is, which transfer money directly from Peter to Paul. These are the pure, subsidy-granting activities. Now, of course, there is considerable similarity between the two branches of government action. Both are transfer activities insofar as they pay the salaries of the bureaucracy engaged in these operations. Both even involve shifts of resources, since transfer activities shift non-specific factors from free market, voluntary activity to demands stemming from state-privileged groups. Both subsidize. The supply of governmental services, as well as the purchase of material by government enterprises, constitutes a subsidy. But the difference is important enough to preserve. For in one case, goods are used for, and resources are devoted to, state purposes as the state wills. In the other, the state subsidizes private individuals who employ resources as they think best. Transfer payments are pure subsidies without prior diversion of resources. We shall first analyze transfer payments as pure subsidies and then see how the analysis applies to the subsidizing aspects of resource-using activities. 1. Government Subsidies – Transfer Payments There are two and only two ways of acquiring wealth. The economic means – voluntary production and exchange – and the political means, confiscation by coercion. 
On the free market, only the economic means can be used, and consequently everyone earns only what other individuals in society are willing to pay for his services. As long as this continues, there is no separate process called distribution. There are only production and exchange of goods. Let government subsidies enter the scene, however, and the situation changes. Now the political means to wealth becomes available. On the free market, wealth is only a resultant of the voluntary choices of all individuals and the extent to which men serve each other. But the possibility of government subsidy permits a change. It opens the way to an allocation of wealth in accordance with the ability of a person or group to gain control of the state apparatus. Government subsidy creates a separate distribution process, not redistribution, as some would be tempted to say. For the first time, earnings are severed from production and exchange and become separately determined. To the extent that this distribution occurs, therefore, the allocation of earnings is distorted away from efficient service to consumers. Therefore, we may say that all cases of subsidy coercively penalize the efficient for the benefit of the inefficient. Subsidies consequently prolong the life of inefficient firms at the expense of efficient ones, distort the productive system, and hamper the mobility of factors from less to more value-productive locations. They injure the market greatly and prevent the full satisfaction of consumer wants. Suppose, for example, an entrepreneur is sustaining losses in some industry, or the owner of a factor is earning a very low sum there. On the market, the factor owner would shift to a more value-productive industry, where both the owner of the factor and the consumers would be better served. If the government subsidizes him where he is, however, the life of inefficient firms is prolonged, and factors are encouraged not to enter their most value-productive uses. The greater the extent of government subsidy in the economy, therefore, the more the market is prevented from working, and the more inefficient will the market be in catering to consumer wants. Hence, the greater the government subsidy, the lower will be the standard of living of everyone, of all the consumers. On the free market, as we have seen, there is a harmony of interests, for everyone demonstrably gains in utility from market exchange. Where government intervenes, on the other hand, caste conflict is thereby created, for one man benefits at the expense of another. This is most clearly seen in the case of government transfer subsidies paid from tax or inflation funds, an obvious taking from Peter to give to Paul. Let the subsidy method become general, then, and everyone will rush to gain control of the government. Production will be more and more neglected, as people divert their energies to the political struggles, to the scramble for loot. 
It is obvious that production and general living standards are lowered in two ways. One, by the diversion of energy from production to politics, and two, by the fact that the government inevitably burdens the producers with the incubus of an inefficient, privileged group. The inefficient achieve a legal claim to ride herd on the efficient. This is all the more true since those who succeed in any occupation will inevitably tend to be those who are best at it. Those who succeed on the free market in economic life will therefore be those most adept at production and at serving their fellow men. Those who succeed in the political struggle will be those most adept at employing coercion and winning favors from wielders of coercion. Generally, different people will be adept at these different tasks, in accordance with universal specialization and the division of labor, and hence the shackling of one set of people will be done for the benefit of another set. But perhaps it will be argued that the same people will be efficient at both activities, and that therefore there will be no exploitation of one group at the expense of another. As we have said, this is hardly likely. If true, the subsidy system would die out, because it would be pointless for a group to pay the government to subsidize itself. But further, the subsidy system would promote the predatory skills of these individuals and penalize their productive ones. In sum, governmental subsidy systems promote inefficiency in production and efficiency in coercion and subservience, while penalizing efficiency in production and inefficiency in predation. Those people who ethically favor voluntary production can gauge which system, the free market or subsidies, scores the higher economic marks, while those who favor conquest and confiscation must at least reckon with the overall loss of production that their policy brings about. This analysis applies to all forms of government subsidies, including grants of monopolistic privilege to favored producers. A common example of direct transfer subsidies is governmental poor relief. State poor relief is clearly a subsidization of poverty. Men are now automatically entitled to money from the state because of their poverty, Hence, the marginal disutility of income foregone from leisure diminishes, and idleness and poverty tend to increase. Thus, state subsidization of poverty tends to increase poverty, which in turn increases the amount of subsidy paid and extracted from those who are not impoverished. When, as is generally the case, the amount of subsidy depends directly on the number of children possessed by the pauper, there is a further incentive for the pauper to have more children than otherwise, since he is assured of a proportionate subsidy by the state. Consequently, the number of paupers tends to multiply still further. As Thomas Mackay aptly stated, the cause of pauperism is relief. We shall not get rid of pauperism by extending the sphere of state relief. 
On the contrary, its adoption would increase our pauperism, for, as is often said, we can have exactly as many paupers as the country chooses to pay for. Private charity to the poor, on the other hand, does not have the same effect, for the poor would not have a compulsory and unlimited claim on the rich. Instead, charity is a voluntary and flexible act of grace on the part of the giver. The sincerity of government's desire to promote charity may be gauged by two perennial governmental drives— one to suppress charity rackets, and the other to drive individual beggars off the streets because the government makes plenty of provision for them. From the following admiring anecdote of such a drive, the reader can gauge just who was the true friend of the poor organ grinder, his customer or the government. During a similar campaign to clean up the streets of organ grinders, most of whom were simply licensed beggars, a woman came up to LaGuardia at a social function and begged him not to deprive her of her favorite organ grinder. Where do you live? he asked her. On Park Avenue. LaGuardia successfully pushed through his plan to eliminate the organ grinders and the peddlers, despite the pleas of the penthouse slummers. The effect of both measures is to suppress voluntary individual gifts of charity and to force the public to root its giving into those channels approved by and tied in with government officialdom. Similarly, unemployment relief, instead of helping to cure unemployment as often is imagined, actually subsidizes and intensifies it. We have seen that unemployment arises when laborers or unions set a minimum wage above what they can obtain on the free market. Tax aid helps them to keep this unrealistic minimum and hence prolongs the period in which they can continue to withhold their labor from the market. 2. Resource-Using Activities Government Ownership versus Private Ownership The bulk of government activities use resources, redirecting factors of production to government-chosen ends, these activities generally involve the real or supposed supply of services by government to some or all of the populace. Government functions here as an owner and enterpriser. Resource-using expenditures by government are often considered investment, and this classification forms an essential part of the Keynesian doctrine. We have argued that on the contrary, all of this expenditure must be considered consumption. Investment occurs where producers' goods are bought by entrepreneurs, not at all for their own use or satisfaction, but merely to reshape and resell them to others, ultimately to the consumers. But government redirects the resources of society to its ends, chosen by it and backed by the use of force. Hence, these purchases must be considered consumption expenditures, whatever their intention or physical result. 
They are a particularly wasteful form of consumption, however, since they are generally not regarded as consumption expenditures by government officials. Government enterprises may either provide free services or charge a price or fee to users. Free services are particularly characteristic of government. Police and military protection, firefighting, education, some water supply come to mind as examples. The first point to note, of course, is that these services are not and cannot be truly free. A free good would not be a good, and thus not an object of human action. It would exist in abundance for all. If a good does not exist plentifully for all, then the resource is scarce, and supplying it costs society other goods foregone. Hence, it cannot be free. The resources needed to supply the free governmental service are extracted from the rest of production. Payment is made, however, not by users on the basis of their voluntary purchases, but by a coerced levy on the taxpayers. A basic split is effected between payment for and receipt of service. Many grave consequences follow from this split and from the free service. As in all cases where price is below the free market price, an enormous and excessive demand is stimulated for the good, far beyond the supply of such service available. Consequently, there will always be shortages of the free good, constant complaints of insufficiency, overcrowding, etc., to illustrate, we need only cite such common conditions as police shortages, particularly in crime-ridden districts, teacher and school shortages in the public school system, traffic jams on government-owned streets and highways, etc. In no area of the free market are there chronic complaints about shortages and insufficiencies. In all areas of private enterprise, firms try to coax and persuade consumers to buy more of their product. Where government owns, on the other hand, there are invariably calls on consumers for patience and sacrifice, and there are continual problems of shortages and deficiencies. It is doubtful if any private enterprise would ever do what the government of New York and other cities have done, exhort the consumers to use less water. It is also characteristic of government operation that when a water shortage develops, it is the consumers and not the government enterprisers who are blamed for the shortage. The pressure is on consumers to sacrifice and use less, while in private industry, the welcome pressure is on entrepreneurs to supply more. The well-known inefficiencies of government operation are not empirical accidents, resulting perhaps from the lack of a civil service tradition. They are inherent in all government enterprise, and the excessive demand fomented by free and other underpriced services is just one of the many reasons for this condition.
Thus, free supply not only subsidizes the users at the expense of non-using taxpayers, it also misallocates resources by failing to supply the service where it is most needed. The same is true to a lesser extent wherever the price is under the free market price. On the free market, consumers can dictate the pricing and thereby assure the best allocation of productive resources to supply their wants. In a government enterprise, this cannot be done. Let us take again the case of the free service. Since there is no pricing, and therefore no exclusion of sub-marginal uses, there is no way that government, even if it wanted to, could allocate its services to the most important uses and to the most eager buyers. All buyers, all uses, are artificially kept on the same plane. As a result, the most important uses will be slighted, and the government is faced with insuperable allocation problems, which it cannot solve even to its own satisfaction. Thus, the government will be confronted with the problem, should we build a road in place A or place B? There is no rational way by which it can make this decision. It cannot aid the private consumers of the road in the best way. It can decide only according to the whim of the ruling government official, that is, only if the government official, not the public, does the consuming. If the government wishes to do what is best for the public, it is faced with an impossible task. Government can either deliberately subsidize by giving a service away free, or it may genuinely try to find the true market price, that is, to operate on a business basis. This is often the cry raised by conservatives, that government enterprise be placed on a business footing, that deficits be ended, etc. Almost always this means raising the price. Is this a solution, however? It is often stated that a single government enterprise operating within the sphere of a private market, buying from it, etc., can price its services and allocate its resources efficiently. This, however, is incorrect. There is a fatal flaw that permeates every conceivable scheme of government enterprise and ineluctably prevents it from rational pricing and efficient allocation of resources. Because of this flaw, government enterprise can never be operated on a business basis, no matter what the government's intentions. What is this fatal flaw? It is the fact that government can obtain virtually unlimited resources by means of its coercive tax power. Private businesses must obtain their funds from investors. It is this allocation of funds by investors on the basis of time preference and foresight that rations funds and resources to the most profitable and therefore the most serviceable uses. Private firms can get funds only from consumers and investors. 
They can get funds, in other words, only from people who value and buy their services, and from investors who are willing to risk investment of their saved funds in anticipation of profit. In short, payment and service are, once again, indissolubly linked on the market. Government, on the other hand, can get as much money as it likes. The free market provides a mechanism for allocating funds for future and present consumption, for directing resources to their most value-productive uses for all the people. It thereby provides a means for businessmen to allocate resources and to price services to ensure such optimum use. Government, however, has no check rein on itself, that is, no requirement for meeting a profit and loss test of valued service to consumers to enable it to obtain funds. Private enterprise can get funds only from satisfied valuing customers and from investors guided by profits and losses. Government can get funds literally at its own whim. With the check rein gone, gone also is any opportunity for government to allocate resources rationally. How can it know whether to build road A or road B, whether to invest in a road or a school? In fact, how much to spend for all its activities? There is no rational way that it can allocate funds or even decide how much to have. When there is a shortage of teachers or schoolrooms or police or streets, the government and its supporters have only one answer. More money. The people must relinquish more of their money to the government. Why is this answer never offered on the free market? The reason is that money must be withdrawn from some other use in consumption or investment, and this withdrawal must be justified. This justification is provided by the test of profit and loss, the indication that the most urgent wants of the consumers are being satisfied. If an enterprise or product is earning high profits for its owners, and these profits are expected to continue, more money will be forthcoming. If not, and losses are being incurred, money will flow out of the industry. The profit and loss test serves as the critical guide for directing the flow of productive resources. No such guide exists for the government, which has no rational way to decide how much money to spend, either in total or in each specific line. The more money it spends, the more service it can supply. But where to stop? Proponents of government enterprise may retort that the government could simply tell its bureau to act as if it were a profit-making enterprise and to establish itself in the same way as a private business. There are two flaws in this theory. First, it is impossible to play enterprise. Enterprise means risking one's own money in investment. Bureaucratic managers and politicians have no real incentive to develop entrepreneurial skill, 
to really adjust to consumer demands. They do not risk loss of their money in the enterprise. Secondly, aside from the question of incentives, even the most eager managers could not function as a business. Regardless of the treatment accorded the operation after it is established, the initial launching of the firm is made with government money, and therefore by coercive levy. An arbitrary element has been built into the very vitals of the enterprise. Further, any future expenditures may be made out of tax funds, and therefore the decisions of the managers will be subject to the same flaw. The ease of obtaining money will inherently distort the operations of the government enterprise. Moreover, suppose the government invests in an enterprise. E. Either the free market, left alone, would also have invested the same amount in the self-same enterprise, or it would not. If it would have, then the economy suffers at least from the take going to the intermediary bureaucracy. If not, and this is almost certain, then it follows immediately that the expenditure on E is a distortion of private utility on the market, that some other expenditure would have greater monetary returns. It follows once again that a government enterprise cannot duplicate the conditions of private business. In addition, the establishment of government enterprise creates an inherent competitive advantage over private firms, for at least part of its capital was gained by coercion rather than service. It is clear that government, with its subsidization, if it wishes, can drive private business out of the field. Private investment in the same industry will be greatly restricted, since future investors will anticipate losses at the hands of the privileged governmental competitors. Moreover, since all services compete for the consumer's dollar, all private firms and all private investment will to some degree be affected and hampered. And when a government enterprise opens, it generates fears in other industries that they will be next, and that they will be either confiscated or forced to compete with government-subsidized enterprises. This fear tends to repress productive investment further, and thus lower the general standard of living still more. The clinching argument, and one that is used quite correctly by opponents of government ownership, is, if business operation is so desirable, why take such a tortuous route? Why not scrap government ownership and turn the operation over to private enterprise? Why go to such lengths to try to imitate the apparent ideal, private ownership, when the ideal may be pursued directly? The plea for business principles in government, therefore, makes little sense, even if it could be successful. The inefficiencies of government operation are compounded by several other factors. As we have seen, a government enterprise competing in an industry can usually drive out private owners, since the government can subsidize itself in many ways and supply itself with unlimited funds when desired.
Thus, it has little incentive to be efficient. In cases where it cannot compete, even under these conditions, it can arrogate to itself a compulsory monopoly, driving out competitors by force. This was done in the United States in the case of the post office. When the government thus grants itself a monopoly, it may go to the other extreme from free service. It may charge a monopoly price. Charging a monopoly price, identifiably different from a free market price, distorts resources again and creates an artificial scarcity of the particular good. It also permits an enormously lowered quality of service. A governmental monopoly need not worry that customers may go elsewhere or that inefficiency may mean its demise. Only governments can make self-satisfied announcements of cuts in service to affect economies. In private business, economies must be made as a corollary of improvements in service. A recent example of governmental cuts is the decline in American postal deliveries, joined, of course, with request for higher rates. When France nationalized the important Western railway system in 1908, freight was increasingly damaged. Trains slowed down, and accidents grew to such an extent that an economist caustically observed that the French government had added railway accidents to its growing list of monopolies. A further reason for governmental inefficiency has been touched on already: that the personnel have no incentive to be efficient. In fact, the skills they will develop will not be the economic skills of production, but political skills: how to fawn on political superiors, how demagogically to attract the electorate, how to wield force most effectively. These skills are very different from the productive ones, and therefore, different people will rise to the top in the government from those who succeed in the market. Hayek showed us that the worst get on top in a collectivist regime. This is true for any government-run enterprise, however. For our purposes, we may excise the moral evaluation and say that for any task, those who get on top will be those with the most skill in that particular task—a praxeological law. The difference is that the market promotes and rewards the skills of production and voluntary cooperation. Government enterprise promotes the skills of mass coercion and bureaucratic submission. On the market, workers get paid in accordance with their discounted marginal value product. But in a government enterprise, which can charge any price it pleases, there is no discernible value product, and workers are hired and paid according to the personal charm or political attractions that they have for their superiors. It is particularly absurd to call for business principles where a government enterprise functions as a monopoly. Periodically, there are demands that the post office be put on a business basis and end its deficit, which must be paid by the taxpayers. 
but ending the deficit of an inherently and necessarily inefficient government operation does not mean going on a business basis. In order to do so, the price must be raised high enough to achieve a monopoly price, and thus cover the costs of the government's inefficiencies. A monopoly price will levy an excessive burden on the users of the postal service, especially since the monopoly is compulsory. On the other hand, we have seen that even monopolists must abide by the consumer's demand schedule. If this demand schedule is elastic enough, it may well happen that a monopoly price will reduce revenue so much, or cut down so much on its increase, that a higher price will increase deficits rather than decrease them. An outstanding example has been the New York subway system in recent years, which has been raising its fares in a vain attempt to end its deficit. Only to see passenger volume fall so drastically that the deficit increased even further after a time. Ironically enough, the higher fares have driven many customers to buying and driving their own cars, thus aggravating the perennial traffic problem: scarcity of government street space. Another example of government intervention creating and multiplying its own difficulties. Many criteria have been offered by writers as guides for the pricing of government services. One criterion supports pricing according to marginal cost. However, this is hardly a criterion at all, and rests on classical economic fallacies of price determination by costs. For one thing, marginal varies according to the period of time surveyed. Furthermore, costs are not static but flexible. They change according to selling prices, and hence cannot be used as a guide to those prices. Moreover, prices equal average costs, or rather, average costs equal prices, only in final equilibrium. And equilibrium cannot be regarded as an ideal for the real world. The market only tends toward this goal. Finally, costs of government operation will be higher than for a similar operation on the free market. Government enterprise will not only hamper and repress private investment and entrepreneurship in the same industry and in industries throughout the economy; it will also disrupt the entire labor market. For A. The government will decrease production and living standards in the society by siphoning off potentially productive labor to the bureaucracy. B. In using confiscated funds, the government will be able to pay more than the market rate for labor, and hence set up a clamor by government job seekers for an expansion of the unproductive bureaucratic machine. And C. Through high tax-supported wages, the government may well mislead workers and unions into believing that this reflects the market wage in private industry, thereby causing unwanted unemployment. 
Moreover, government enterprise basing itself on coercion over the consumer can hardly fail to substitute its own values for those of its customers. Hence, artificially standardized services of poorer quality, fashioned to governmental taste and convenience, will hold sway, in contrast to those of the free market, where diversified services of high quality are supplied to fit the varied tastes of a multitude of individuals. Governments, despite bickering before a decision, generally end up speaking with a single voice. This is true of the executive and judicial arms, which are organized like a military force with command from the top down, and of the legislative arm, where the majority may impose its will. One cartel or one firm could not own all the means of production in the economy because it could not calculate prices and allocate factors in a rational manner. This is the reason why state socialism could not plan or allocate rationally either. In fact, even two or more stages could not be completely integrated vertically on the market, for total integration would eliminate a whole segment of the market and establish an island of calculational and allocational chaos, an island that would preclude optimal planning for profits and maximum satisfaction for the consumers. In the case of simple government ownership, still another extension of this thesis unfolds. For each governmental firm introduces its own island of chaos into the economy. There is no need to wait for socialism for chaos to begin its work. No government enterprise can ever determine prices or costs or allocate factors or funds in a rational, welfare-maximizing manner. No government enterprise can be established on a business basis, even if the desire were present. Thus, any government operation injects a point of chaos into the economy. And since all markets are interconnected in the economy, every governmental activity disrupts and distorts pricing, the allocation of factors, consumption investment ratios, etc. Every government enterprise not only lowers the social utilities of the consumers by forcing the allocation of funds to ends other than those desired by the public, it also lowers the utility of everyone, including perhaps the utilities of government officials, by distorting the market and spreading calculational chaos. The greater the extent of government ownership, of course, the more pronounced will this impact become. Aside from its purely economic consequences, government ownership has another kind of impact on society. It necessarily substitutes conflict for the harmony of the free market. Since government service means service by one set of decision-makers, it comes to mean uniform service. The desires of all those forced, directly or indirectly, to pay for the government service cannot be satisfied. Only some forms of the service can or will be produced by the government agency. 
As a result, government enterprise creates enormous caste conflicts among the citizens, each of whom has a different idea on the best form of service. In recent years, government schools in America have furnished a striking example of such conflicts. Some parents prefer racially segregated schools. Others prefer integrated education. Some parents want their children taught socialism. Others want anti-socialist teaching in the schools. There is no way that government can resolve these conflicts. It can only impose the will of the majority, or a bureaucratic interpretation of it, by coercion, and leave an often large minority dissatisfied and unhappy. Whichever type of school is chosen, some groups of parents will suffer. On the other hand, there is no such conflict on the free market, which provides any type of service demanded. On the market, those who want segregated or integrated, socialist or individualist schools can have their wants satisfied. It is obvious, therefore, that governmental, as opposed to private provision of services, lowers the standard of living of much of the population. The degrees of government ownership in the economy vary from one country to another. But in all countries, the state has made sure that it owns the vital nerve centers, the command posts of the society. It has acquired compulsory monopoly ownership over these command posts, and it has always tried to convince the populace that private ownership and enterprise in these fields is simply and a priori impossible. We have seen, on the contrary, that every service can be supplied on the free market. The vital command posts, invariably owned monopolistically by the state, are one, police and military protection; two, judicial protection; three, monopoly of the mint and monopoly of defining money; four, rivers and coastal seas; five. Urban streets and highways, and land generally, unused land in addition to the power of eminent domain, and six the post office. The defense function is the one reserved most jealously by the state. It is vital to the state's existence, for on its monopoly of force depends its ability to exact taxes from the citizens. If citizens were permitted privately owned courts and armies, then they would possess the means to defend themselves against invasive acts by the government, as well as by private individuals. Control of the basic land resources, particularly transportation, is of course an excellent method of ensuring overall control. The post office has always been a very convenient tool for the inspection and prohibition of messages by heretics or enemies of the state. In recent years, the state has constantly sought to expand these outposts. Monopoly of the mint and of the definition of money, legal tender laws, has been used to achieve full control of the nation's monetary system. This was one of the state's most difficult tasks, since for centuries paper money was thoroughly distrusted by the people. 
Monopoly over the mint and the definition of monetary standards has led to the debasement of the coinage, a shift of monetary names from units of weight to meaningless terms, and the replacement of gold and silver by bank or government paper. At present, the state in nearly every country has achieved its major monetary goal, the ability to expand its revenue by inflating the currency at will. In the other areas, land and natural resources, transportation and communication, the state is more and more in control. Finally, another critical command post held, though not wholly monopolized by the state, is education. For government schooling permits influencing the youthful mind to accept the virtues of the government and of government intervention. Those defenders of the free market who attack socialistic teaching in the government schools are tilting at windmills. The very fact that a government school exists and is therefore presumed to be good teaches its little charges the virtues of government ownership, regardless of what is formally taught in textbooks. And if government ownership is preferable in schooling, why not in other educational media, such as newspapers or in other important areas of society? In many countries, the government does not have a compulsory monopoly of schooling, but it approaches this ideal by compelling attendance of all children at either a government school or a private school approved or accredited by government. Compulsory attendance herds into the schools those who do not desire schooling and thus drives too many children into education. Too few youngsters remain in such competing fields as leisure, home study, and business employment. One very curious governmental activity has grown enormously in the present century. Its great popularity is a notable indication of widespread popular ignorance of praxeological law. We are referring to what is called social security legislation. This system confiscates the income of the poorer wage earners and then presumes to invest the money more wisely than they could themselves, later paying out the money to them or their beneficiaries in their old age. Considered as social insurance, this is a typical example of government enterprise. There is no relation between premiums and benefits, both changing yearly under the impact of political pressures. On the free market, anyone who wishes to invest in an insurance annuity or in stocks or real estate may do so compelling everyone to transfer his funds to the government forces him to lose utility. Thus, even on its face, it is difficult to understand the great popularity of the Social Security system, but the true nature of the operation differs greatly from its official image. For the government does not invest the funds it takes in taxes. It simply spends them, giving itself bonds, which must be later cashed when the benefits fall due. How will the cash then be obtained? Only from further taxes or inflation. Thus, the public must pay twice 
for Social Security. The Social Security program taxes twice for one payment. It is a device to permit palatable taxation of the lower income groups by the government. And, as is true of all taxes, the proceeds go into governmental consumption. In weighing the question of private or governmental ownership of any enterprise, then, one should keep in mind the following conclusions of our analysis. 1. Every service can be supplied privately on the market. 2. Private ownership will be more efficient in providing better quality of service at lower cost. 3. Allocation of resources in a private enterprise will better satisfy consumer demands, while government enterprise will distort allocations and introduce islands of calculational chaos. 4. Government ownership will repress private activity in non-competing as well as competing firms. 5. Private ownership ensures the harmonious and cooperative satisfaction of desires, while government ownership creates caste conflict. Various other criteria advanced to decide between private and state action are fallacious. Thus, a common rule states that government should weigh marginal social costs against marginal social benefits in making a decision. But aside from many other flaws, there is no such thing as society apart from constituent individuals, so that this criterion is meaningless. 3. Resource-Using Activities Socialism Socialism, or collectivism, occurs when the state owns all the means of production. It is the compulsory abolition and prohibition of private enterprise and the monopolization of the entire productive sphere by the state. Socialism, therefore, extends the principle of compulsory governmental monopoly from a few isolated enterprises to the whole economic system. It is the violent abolition of the market. If an economy is to exist at all, there must be production in order to satisfy the desires of the consuming individuals. How is this production to be organized? Who is to decide on the allocation of factors to all the various uses, or on the income each factor will receive in each use? There are two and only two ways that an economy can be organized. One is by freedom and voluntary choice, the way of the market. The other is by force and dictation, the way of the state. To those ignorant of economics, it may seem that only the latter constitutes real organization and planning, whereas the way of the market is only confusion and chaos. The organization of the free market, however, is actually an amazing and flexible means of satisfying the wants of all individuals, and one far more efficient than state operation or intervention. Up to this point, however, we have discussed only isolated government enterprises and various forms of government intervention in the market. We must now examine socialism 
the system of pure government dictation, the polar opposite of the purely free market. We have defined ownership as the exclusive control of a resource. It is clear, therefore, that a planned economy, which leaves nominal ownership in the hands of the previous private owners, but which places the actual control and direction of resources in the hands of the state, is as much socialism as is the formal nationalization of property. The Nazi and fascist regimes were as socialist as the communist system that nationalizes all productive property. Many people refuse to identify Nazism or fascism as socialism because they confine the latter term to Marxist or neo-Marxist proletarianism or to various social democratic proposals. But economics is not concerned with the color of the uniform or with the good or bad manners of the rulers, nor does it care which groups or classes are running the state in various political regimes. Neither does it matter for economics whether the socialist regime chooses its rulers by elections or by coup d'etat. Economics is concerned only with the powers of ownership or control that the state exercises. All forms of state planning of the whole economy are types of socialism, notwithstanding the philosophical or aesthetic viewpoints of the various socialist camps, and regardless whether they are referred to as rightists or leftists. Socialism may be monarchical. It may be proletarian, it may equalize fortunes, it may increase inequality. Its essence is always the same, total coercive state dictation over the economy. The distance between the poles of the purely free market on the one hand and total collectivism on the other is a continuum involving different mixes of the freedom principle and the coercive hegemonic principle. Any increase of governmental ownership or control, therefore, is socialistic or collectivistic because it is a coercive intervention bringing the economy one step closer to complete socialism. The extent of collectivism in the 20th century is at once under and overestimated. On the one hand, its development in such countries as the United States is greatly underestimated. Most observers neglect, for example, the importance of the expansion of government lending. The lender is also an entrepreneur and part owner, regardless of his legal status. Government loans to private enterprise, therefore, or guarantees of private loans, create many centers of government ownership. Furthermore, the total quantity of savings in the economy is not increased by government guarantees and loans, but its specific form is changed. The free market tends to allocate social savings to their most profitable and productive channels. Government loans and guarantees, by contrast, divert savings from more to less productive channels. 
They also prevent the success of the most efficient entrepreneurs and the weeding out of the inefficient, who would then become simply labor factors rather than entrepreneurs. In both these ways, therefore, government lending lowers the general standard of living, to say nothing of the loss of utility inflicted on the taxpayers, who must make these pledges good, or who supply the money to be loaned. On the other hand, the extent of socialism in such countries as Soviet Russia is overrated. Those people who point to Russia as an example of successful planning by the government ignore the fact, aside from the planning difficulties constantly encountered, that Soviet Russia and other socialist countries cannot have full socialism because only domestic trade is socialized. The rest of the world still has a market of sorts. A socialist state, therefore, can still buy and sell on the world market and at least vaguely approximate the rational pricing of producers' goods by referring to the prices of factors set on the world market. Although the errors of even this partial socialist planning are impoverishing, they are insignificant compared to what would happen under the total calculational chaos of a world socialist state. One big cartel could not calculate, and therefore could not be established on the free market. How much more does this apply to socialism, where the state imposes its overall monopoly by force, and where the inefficiencies of a single state's actions are multiplied a thousandfold? One point should not be overlooked in the analysis of specific socialist regimes, the possibility of a black market, with resources passing illicitly into private hands. This differs completely from the artificial play-at-markets advocated by some writers as a method of permitting calculation under socialism. The black market is a real market, though very limited in scope. Of course, the opportunity for black markets in large-sized goods is rather limited. There is more scope for such trade where commodities like candy, cigarettes, drugs, and stockings are easy to conceal. On the other hand, falsification of records by managers and the pervasive opportunity for bribery may be used to establish some form of limited market. There is reason to believe, for example, that extensive graft, blot, and black markets, that is, the subversion of socialist planning, have been essential to the level of production which the Soviet system has been able to attain. In recent years, the total failure of socialist planning to calculate for an industrial economy has been implicitly acknowledged by the communist countries which have been rapidly moving, especially in Eastern Europe, away from socialism and toward an ever-freer market economy. This progress has been particularly remarkable in Yugoslavia, which is now marked by private as well as producers' cooperative ownership, and by the absence of central planning, even of investments. 
Yugoslav economists are even thinking in terms of developing a stock market and refer to this latent development as socialist people's capitalism. 4. The Myth of Public Ownership We all hear a great deal about public ownership. Whenever the government owns property, in fact, or operates an enterprise, it is referred to as publicly owned. When natural resources are sold or given to private enterprise, we learn that the public domain has been given away to narrow private interests. The inference is that when the government owns anything, we, all members of the public, own equal shares of that property. Contrast to this broad sweep the narrow, petty interests of mere private ownership. We have seen that since a socialist economic system could not calculate economically, a die-hard socialist must be prepared to witness the disappearance of a large part of the Earth's population, with only primitive subsistence remaining for the survivors. Still, a man who identifies government with public ownership might be content to spread the area of government ownership despite the loss of efficiency or social utility it entails. The identity itself, however, is completely fallacious. Ownership is the ultimate control and direction of a resource. The owner of a property is its ultimate director, regardless of legal fictions to the contrary. In the purely free society, resources so abundant as to serve as general conditions of human welfare would remain unowned. Scarce resources, on the other hand, would be owned on the following principles. Self-ownership of each person by himself, self-ownership of a person's created or transformed property, first ownership of previously unowned land by its first user or transformer. Government ownership means simply that the ruling officialdom owns the property. The top officials are the ones who direct the use of the property, and they therefore do the owning. The public owns no part of the property. Any citizen who doubts this may try to appropriate for his own individual use his aliquot part of public property, and then try to argue his case in court. It may be objected that individual stockholders of corporations cannot do this either. For example, by the rules of the company, a General Motors stockholder is not allowed to seize a car in lieu of cash dividends or in exchange for his stock. Yet stockholders do own their company, and this example precisely proves our point. For the stockholder can contract out of his company. He can sell his shares of General Motors stock to someone else. The subject of a government cannot contract out of that government. He cannot sell his shares in the post office because he has no such shares. As F. A. Harper has succinctly stated, the corollary of the right of ownership is the right of disownership. So if I cannot sell a thing, it is evident that I do not really own it.
Whatever the form of government, the rulers are the true owners of the property. However, in a democracy, or in the long run under any form of government, the rulers are transitory. They can always lose an election or be overthrown by a coup d'etat. Hence, no government official regards himself as more than a transitory owner. As a result, while a private owner, secure in his property and owning its capital value, plans the use of his resource over a long period of time, the government official must milk the property as quickly as he can, since he has no security of ownership. Further, even the entrenched civil servant must do the same, for no government official can sell the capitalized value of his property as private owners can. In short, government officials own the use of resources, but not their capital value, except in the case of the private property of a hereditary monarch, when only the current use can be owned, but not the resource itself, there will quickly ensue uneconomic exhaustion of the resources, since it will be to no one's benefit to conserve it over a period of time, and to every owner's advantage to use it up as quickly as possible. In the same way, government officials will consume their property as rapidly as possible. It is curious that almost all writers parrot the notion that private owners, possessing time preference, must take the short view, while only government officials can take the long view and allocate property to advance the general welfare. The truth is exactly the reverse. The private individual, secure in his property and in his capital resource, can take the long view, for he wants to maintain the capital value of his resource. It is the government official who must take and run, who must plunder the property while he is still in command. Those who object that private individuals are mortal, but that governments are immortal, indulge in the fallacy of conceptual realism at its starkest. Government is not a real acting entity, but is a real category of action adopted by actual individuals. It is a name for a type of action, the regularization of a type of interpersonal relation, and is not itself an acting being. 5. Democracy Democracy is a process of choosing government rulers or policies, and is therefore distinct from what we have been considering, the nature and consequences of various policies that a government may choose. A democracy can choose relatively laissez-faire or relatively interventionist programs, and the same is true for a dictator. And yet, the problem of forming a government cannot be absolutely separated from the policy that government pursues, and so we shall discuss some of these connections here. Democracy is a system of majority rule, in which each citizen has one vote, either in deciding the policies of the government or in electing the rulers, who will in turn decide policy. 
it is a system replete with inner contradictions. In the first place, suppose that the majority overwhelmingly wishes to establish a popular dictator or the rule of a single party. The people wish to surrender all decision-making into his or its hands. Does the system of democracy permit itself to be voted democratically out of existence? Whichever way the Democrat answers, he is caught in an inescapable contradiction. If the majority can vote into power a dictator who will end further elections, then democracy is really ending its own existence. From then on, there is no longer democracy, although there is continuing majority consent to the dictatorial party or ruler. Democracy in that case becomes a transition to a non-democratic form of government. On the other hand, if, as it is now fashionable to maintain, the majority of voters in a democracy are prohibited from doing one thing, ending the democratic elective process itself, then this is no longer democracy, because the majority of voters can no longer rule. The election process may be preserved, but how can it express that majority rule essential to democracy if the majority cannot end this process should it so desire? In short, democracy requires two conditions for its existence, majority rule over governors or policies, and periodic equal voting. So, if the majority wishes to end the voting process, democracy cannot be preserved regardless of which horn of the dilemma is chosen. The idea that the majority must preserve the freedom of the minority to become the majority is then seen not as a preservation of democracy, but as simply an arbitrary value judgment on the part of the political scientist, or at least it remains arbitrary until justified by some cogent ethical theory. This idea that democracy must force the majority to permit the minority the freedom to become a majority is an attempt by social democratic theorists to permit those results of democracy which they like, economic interventionism, socialism, while avoiding the results which they do not like, interference with human rights, freedom of speech, etc., they do this by trying to elevate their value judgments into an allegedly scientific definition of democracy. Aside from the self-contradiction, this limitation is itself not as rigorous as they believe. It would permit a democracy, for example, to slaughter Negroes or redheads because there is no chance that such minority groups could become majorities. This dilemma occurs not only if the majority wishes to select a dictator, but also if it desires to establish the purely free society that we have outlined. For that society has no overall monopoly government organization, and the only place where equal voting would obtain would be in cooperatives, which have always been inefficient forms of organization. 
The only important form of voting in that society would be that of shareholders in joint stock companies, whose votes would not be equal but proportionate to their shares of ownership in the company assets. Each individual's vote in that case would be meaningfully tied to his share in the ownership of joint assets. To Spencer Heath, this is the only genuine form of democracy. When persons contractually pool their separate titles to property by taking undivided interests in the whole, they elect servants, officers, and otherwise exercise their authority over their property by a process of voting as partners, share owners, or other beneficiaries. This is authentically democratic in that all the members exercise authority in proportion to their respective contributions. Coercion is not employed against any, and all persons are as free to withdraw their membership and property as they were to contribute it. In such a purely free society, there would be nothing for democratic electors to vote about. Here, too, Democracy can be only a possible route toward a free society, rather than an attribute of it. Neither is democracy conceivably workable under socialism. The ruling party, owning all means of production, will have the complete decision, for example, on how much funds to allocate to the opposition parties for propaganda, not to speak of its economic power over all the individual leaders and members of the opposition. With the ruling party deciding the income of every man and the allocation of all resources, it is inconceivable that any functioning political opposition could long persist under socialism. Even if, as is highly unlikely, especially in view of the fact that rulers under socialism are those most adept at wielding force, the socialist leaders were saintly men, wishing to give a political opposition every chance, and even if the opposition were unusually heroic and risked liquidation by emerging into the open, how would the rulers decide their allocations? Would they give funds and resources to all opposing parties, or only to a pro-socialist opposition? How much would they allocate to each opposition party? The only opposition that could emerge would be not opposing parties in an election, but different administrative cliques within the ruling party, as has been true in the communist countries. Thus, democracy is compatible neither with the purely free society nor with socialism. And yet we have seen in this work that only those two societies are stable, that all intermediary mixtures are in unstable equilibrium and always tending toward one or the other pole. This means that democracy, in essence, is itself an unstable and transitional form of government. Democracy suffers from many more inherent contradictions as well. Thus, democratic voting may have either one of these two functions, to determine governmental policy or to select rulers. 
According to the former, what Schumpeter termed the classical theory of democracy, the majority will is supposed to rule on issues. According to the latter theory, majority rule is supposed to be confined to choosing rulers, who in turn decide policy. While most political scientists support the latter version, democracy means the former version to most people, and we shall therefore discuss the classical theory first. According to the will of the people theory, Direct democracy, voting on each issue by all the citizens, as in New England town meetings, is the ideal political arrangement. Modern civilization and the complexities of society, however, are supposed to have outmoded direct democracy, so that we must settle for the less perfect representative democracy, in olden days often called a republic, where the people select representatives to give effect to their will on political issues. Logical problems arise almost immediately. One is that different forms of electoral arrangements, different delimitations of geographical districts, all equally arbitrary, will often greatly alter the picture of the majority will. If a country is divided into districts for choosing representatives, then gerrymandering is inherent in such a division. There is no satisfactory, rational way of demarking the divisions. The party in power at the time of division or redivision will inevitably alter the districts to produce a systematic bias in its favor. But no other way is inherently more rational or more truly evocative of majority will. Moreover, the very division of the Earth's surface into countries is itself arbitrary. If a government covers a certain geographical area, does democracy mean that a majority group in a certain district should be permitted to secede and form its own government, or to join another country? Does democracy mean majority rule over a larger or over a smaller area? In short, which majority should prevail? The very concept of a national democracy is, in fact, self-contradictory. For if someone contends that the majority in country X should govern that country, then it could be argued with equal validity that the majority of a certain district within country X should be allowed to govern itself and secede from the larger country. And this subdividing process can logically proceed down to the village block, the apartment house, and finally each individual, thus marking the end of all democratic government through reduction to individual self-government. But if such a right of secession is denied, then the National Democrat must concede that the more numerous population of other countries should have a right to outvote his country, and so he must proceed upwards to a world government run by a world majority rule. In short, the Democrat who favors national government is self-contradictory, he must favor a world government or none at all. 
Aside from this problem of the geographical boundary of the government or electoral district, the democracy that tries to elect representatives to effect the majority will runs into further problems. Certainly some form of proportional representation would be mandatory to arrive at a kind of cross-section of public opinion. Best would be a proportional representation scheme for the whole country or world so that the cross-section is not distorted by geographic considerations. But here again, different forms of proportional representation will lead to very different results. The critics of proportional representation retort that a legislature elected on this principle would be unstable and that elections should result in a stable majority government. The reply to this is that if we wish to represent the public, a cross-section is required and the instability of representation is only a function of the instability or diversity of public opinion itself. The efficient government argument can be pursued, therefore, only if we abandon the classical majority will theory completely and adopt the second theory, that the only function of the majority is to choose rulers. But even proportional representation would not be as good, according to the classical view of democracy, as direct democracy. And here we come to another important and neglected consideration. Modern technology does make it possible to have direct democracy. Certainly, each man could easily vote on issues several times per week by recording his choice on a device attached to his television set. This would not be difficult to achieve. And yet, why has no one seriously suggested a return to direct democracy, now that it may be feasible? The people could elect representatives through proportional representation solely as advisors to submit bills to the people, but without having ultimate voting power themselves. The final vote would be that of the people themselves, all voting directly. In a sense, the entire voting public would be the legislature, and the representatives could act as committees to bring bills before this vast legislature. The person who favors the classical view of democracy must, therefore, either favor virtual eradication of the legislature and, of course, of executive veto power, or abandon his theory. The objection to direct democracy will undoubtedly be that the people are uninformed and therefore not capable of deciding on the complex issues that face the legislature. But in that case, the Democrat must completely abandon the classical theory that the majority should decide on issues and adopt the modern doctrine that the function of democracy is majority choice of rulers, who in turn will decide the policies. Let us then turn to this doctrine. It faces, fully as much as the classical theory, the self-contradiction on national or electoral boundaries, 
and the modern Democrat, if we may call him such, as much as the classical Democrat, must advocate world government or none at all. On the question of representation, it is true that the modern Democrat can successfully oppose direct television democracy or even proportional representation and resort to our current system of single constituencies. But he is caught in a different dilemma. If the only function of the voting people is to choose rulers, why have a legislature at all? Why not simply vote periodically for a chief executive or president and then call it a day? If the criterion is efficiency and stable rule by a single party for the term of office, then a single executive will be far more stable than a legislature, which may always splinter into warring groups and deadlock the government. The modern Democrat, therefore, must also logically abandon the idea of a legislature and plump for granting all legislative powers to the elected executive. Both theories of democracy, it seems, must abandon the whole idea of a representative legislature. Furthermore, the modern Democrat who scoffs at direct democracy on the ground that the people are not intelligent or informed enough to decide the complex issues of government is caught in another fatal contradiction. He assumes that the people are sufficiently intelligent and informed to vote on the people who will make these decisions. But if a voter is not competent to decide issues A, B, C, etc., how in the world could he possibly be qualified to decide whether Mr. X or Mr. Y is better able to handle A, B, or C? In order to make this decision, the voter would have to know a great deal about the issues and know enough about the persons whom he is selecting. In short, he would probably have to know more in a representative than in a direct democracy. Furthermore, the average voter is necessarily less qualified to choose persons to decide issues than he is to vote on the issues themselves. For the issues are at least intelligible to him, and he can understand some of their relevance, but the candidates are people whom he cannot possibly know personally, and whom he therefore knows essentially nothing about. Hence he can vote for them only on the basis of their external personalities, glamorous smiles, etc., rather than on their actual competence. As a result, however ill-informed the voter, his choice is almost bound to be less intelligent under a representative republic than in a direct democracy. The modern Democrat might object that the candidate's party affiliation enables the voter to learn, if not his personal competence, at least his political ideology, but the modern Democrat is precisely the theorist who hails the current two-party system, in which the platforms of both parties are almost indistinguishable as the most efficient, stable form of democratic government. These considerations also serve to refute the contention of the conservative that a republic will avoid the inherent contradictions of a direct democracy, 
a position that itself stands in contradiction to its proponents' professed opposition to executive as against legislative power. We have seen the problems that democratic theory has with the legislature. It also has difficulty with the judiciary. In the first place, the very concept of an independent judiciary contradicts the theory of democratic rule, whether classical or modern. If the judiciary is really independent of the popular will, then it functions, at least within its own sphere, as an oligarchic dictatorship, and we can no longer call the government a democracy. On the other hand, if the judiciary is elected directly by the voters or appointed by the voters' representatives, both systems are used in the United States, then the judiciary is hardly independent. If the election is periodic or if the appointment is subject to renewal, then the judiciary is no more independent of political processes than any other branch of government. If the appointment is for life, then the independence is greater. Although, even here, if the legislature votes the funds for the judges' salaries, or if it decides the jurisdiction of judicial powers, judicial independence may be sharply impaired. We have not exhausted the problems and contradictions of democratic theory, and we may pursue the rest by asking, why democracy anyway? Until now, we have been discussing various theories of how democracies should function, or what areas, for example, issues or rulers, should be governed by the democratic process. We may now inquire about the theories that support and justify democracy itself. One theory, again of classical vintage, is that the majority will always, or almost always, make the morally right decisions, whether about issues or men. Since this is not an ethical treatise, we cannot deal further with this doctrine, except to say that few people hold this view today. It has been demonstrated that people can democratically choose a wide variety of policies and rulers, and the experience of recent centuries has, for the most part, vitiated any faith that people may have had in the infallible wisdom and righteousness of the average voter. Perhaps the most common and most cogent argument for democracy is not that democratic decisions will always be wise, but that the democratic process provides for peaceful change of government. The majority, so the argument runs, must support any government, regardless of form, if it is to continue existing for long. Far better, then, to let the majority exercise this right peacefully and periodically than to force the majority to keep overturning the government through violent revolution. In short, ballots are hailed as substitutes for bullets. One flaw in this argument is that it completely overlooks the possibility of the non-violent overthrow of the government by the majority through civil disobedience, that is, peaceful refusal to obey government orders. 
Such a revolution would be consistent with this argument's ultimate end of preserving peace, and yet would not require democratic voting. Thus Etienne de la Boetie. Obviously there is no need of fighting to overcome this single tyrant, for he is automatically defeated if the country refuses consent to its own enslavement. It is not necessary to deprive him of anything, but simply to give him nothing. There is no need that the country make an effort to do anything for itself, provided it does nothing against itself. It is therefore the inhabitants themselves who permit, or rather, bring about their own subjection, since by ceasing to submit, they could put an end to their servitude. There is, moreover, another flaw in the peaceful change argument for democracy, this one being a grave self-contradiction that has been universally overlooked. Those who have adopted this argument have simply used it to give a seal of approval to all democracies, and have then moved on quickly to other matters. They have not realized that the peaceful change argument establishes a criterion for government before which any democracy must pass muster. For the argument that ballots are to substitute for bullets must be taken in a precise way, that a democratic election will yield the same result as would have occurred if the majority had had to battle the minority in violent combat. In short, the argument implies that the election results are simply and precisely a substitute for a test of physical combat. Here we have a criterion for democracy. Does it really yield the results that would have been obtained through civil combat? If we find that democracy, or a certain form of democracy, leads systematically to results that are very wide of this bullet-substitute mark, then we must either reject democracy or give up the argument. How, then, does democracy, either generally or in specific countries, fare when we test it against its own criterion? One of the essential attributes of democracy, as we have seen, is that each man have one vote. Even though, in practice, votes of rural or other areas are often more heavily weighted, this democratic ideal is roughly approximated, or at least is the general aspiration in the democratic countries. But the peaceful change argument implies that each man would have counted equally in any combat test. But is this true? In the first place, it is clear that physical power is not equally distributed. In any test of combat, women, old people, sick people, and 4Fs would fare very badly. On the basis of the peaceful change argument, therefore, there is no justification whatever for giving these physically feeble groups the vote. So, barred from voting would be all citizens who could not pass a test, not for literacy, which is largely irrelevant to combat prowess, but for physical fitness. Furthermore, it clearly would be necessary to give plural votes to all men who have been militarily trained, such as soldiers and policemen. 
for it is obvious that a group of highly trained fighters could easily defeat a far more numerous group of equally robust amateurs. In addition to ignoring the inequalities of physical power and combat fitness, democracy fails in another significant way to live up to the logical requirements of the peaceful change thesis. This failure stems from another basic inequality, inequality of interest or intensity of belief. Thus, 60% of the population may oppose a certain policy or political party, while only 40% favor it. In a democracy, this latter policy or party will be defeated. But suppose that the bulk of the 40% are passionate enthusiasts for the measure or candidate, while the bulk of the 60% majority have only slight interest in the entire affair. In the absence of democracy, far more of the passionate 40% would have been willing to engage in a combat test than would the apathetic 60%. And yet, in a democratic election, one vote by an apathetic, only faintly interested person offsets the vote of a passionate partisan. Hence, the democratic process grievously and systematically distorts the results of the hypothetical combat test. It is probable that no voting procedure could avoid this distortion satisfactorily and serve as any sort of accurate substitute for bullets. But certainly much could be done to alter current voting procedures to bring them closer to the criterion and it is surprising that no one has suggested such reforms. The whole trend of existing democracies, for example, has been to make voting easier for the people. But this violates the bullet substitute test directly, because it has been made ever easier for the apathetic to register their votes and thus distort the results. Clearly, what would be needed is to make voting far more difficult, and thus ensure that only the most intensely interested people will vote. A moderately high poll tax, not large enough to keep out those enthusiasts who could not afford to pay, but large enough to discourage the indifferent, would be very helpful. Voting booths should certainly be further apart, the person who refuses to travel any appreciable distance to vote would surely not have fought in his candidate's behalf. Another useful step would be to remove all names from the ballot, thereby requiring the voters themselves to write in the names of their favorites. Not only would this procedure eliminate the decidedly undemocratic special privilege that the state gives to those whose names it prints on the ballot, as against all other persons, but it would bring elections closer to our criterion, for a voter who does not know the name of his candidate would hardly be likely to fight in the streets on his behalf. Another indicated reform would be to abolish the secrecy of the ballot. The ballot has been made secret in order to protect the fearful from intimidation, yet civil combat is peculiarly the province of the courageous. 
Surely those not courageous enough to proclaim their choice openly would not have been formidable fighters in the combat test. These and doubtless other reforms would be necessary to move the election results to a point approximating the results of a combat foregone. And yet, if we define democracy as including equal voting, this means that democracy simply cannot meet its own criterion as deduced from the peaceful change argument. Or, if we define democracy as majority voting but not necessarily equal, then the advocates of democracy would have to favor abolishing the vote for women, sick people, old people, etc., plural voting for the militarily trained, poll taxes, the open vote, etc. In any case, democracy such as we have known it, marked by equal voting for each person, is directly contradicted by the peaceful change argument. One or the other, the argument or the system, must be abandoned. If the arguments for democracy are thus shown to be a maze of fallacy and contradiction, does this mean that democracy must be completely abandoned, except on the basis of a purely arbitrary, unsupported value judgment that democracy is good? Not necessarily, for democracy may be thought of not so much as a value in itself, but as a possible method for achieving other desired ends. The end may be either to put a certain political leader into power or to attain desired governmental policies. Democracy, after all, is simply a method of choosing governors and issues, and it is not so surprising that it might have value largely to the extent that it serves as a means to other political ends. The socialist and the libertarian, for example, while recognizing the inherent instability of the democratic form, may favor democracy as a means of arriving at a socialist or a libertarian society. The libertarian might thus consider democracy as a useful way of protecting people against government or of advancing individual liberty. Some libertarians consider a constitution a useful device for limiting or preventing governmental encroachments on individual liberty. A major difficulty with this idea was pointed out with great clarity by John C. Calhoun, that no matter how strict the limitations placed on government by a written constitution, these limits must be constantly weakened and expanded if the final power to interpret them is placed in the hands of an organ of the government itself, for example, the Supreme Court. One's views of democracy, then, depend upon one's estimates of the given circumstances. Appendix. The Role of Government Expenditures in National Product Statistics National product statistics have been used widely in recent years as a reflection of the total product of society and even to indicate the state of economic welfare. These statistics cannot be used to frame or test economic theory, for one thing because they are an inchoate mixture of grossness and netness, and because no objectively measurable, 
price level exists that can be used as an accurate deflator to obtain statistics of some form of aggregate physical output. National product statistics, however, may be useful to the economic historian in describing or analyzing an historical period. Even so, they are highly misleading as currently used. Private product is appraised at exchange values set by the market, and difficulty occurs even here. The major trouble, however, enters with the appraisal of the role of the government in contributing to the national product. What is the government's contribution to the product of society? Originally, national income statisticians were split on this issue. Simon Kuznets evaluated government services as equal to the taxes paid, assuming that government is akin to private business and that government receipts, like the receipts of a firm, reflect the market appraised value of its product. The error in treating government like a private business should be clear by this point in our discussion. Now generally adopted is the Department of Commerce method of appraising government services as equal to their cost, that is, to government expenditures on the salaries of its officials and on commodities purchased from private enterprise. The difference is that all governmental deficits are included by the department in the government's contribution to the national product. The Department of Commerce method fallaciously assumes that the government's product is measurable by what the government spends. On what possible basis can this assumption be made? Actually, since governmental services are not tested on the free market, there is no possible way of measuring government's alleged productive contribution. All government services, as we have seen, are monopolized and inefficiently supplied. Clearly, if they are worth anything, they are worth far less than their cost in money. Furthermore, the government's tax revenue and deficit revenue are both burdens imposed on production, and the nature of this burden should be recognized. Since government activities are more likely to be depredations upon rather than contributions to production, it is more accurate to make the opposite assumption, namely that government contributes nothing to the national product and its activities sap the national product and channel it into unproductive uses. In using national product statistics, then, we must correct for the inclusion of government activities in the national product. From net national product, we first deduct income originating in government, that is, the salaries of government officials. We must also deduct income originating in government enterprises. These are the current expenditures or salaries of officials in government enterprises that sell their product for a price. National income statistics unfortunately include these accounts in the private rather than in the governmental sector. This leaves us with net private product, or NPP. 
From NPP, we must deduct the depredations of government in order to arrive at private product remaining in private hands, or PPR. These depredations consist of a. Purchases from business by government, b. Purchases from business by government enterprises, and c. Transfer payments. Purchases from business should be deducted gross of government sales to the public rather than net, for government sales are simply equivalent to tax revenue in absorbing money from the private sector. The total of these depredations divided by NPP yields the percentage of government depredations on the private product. A simpler guide to the fiscal impact of government on the economy would be to deduct the total expenditures of government and government enterprises from the NNP. These expenditures equaling income originating in government and government enterprises added to the total depredations. This figure would be an estimate of total government depredation on the economy. Of course, taxes and revenues of government enterprises could be deducted instead from the NNP, and the result would be the same in accordance with double entry principles, provided that a government deficit is also deducted. On the other hand, if there is a surplus in the government budget, then this surplus should be deducted as well as expenditures, since it too absorbs funds from the private sector. In short, either total government expenditures or total government receipts, each figure inclusive of government enterprises, should be deducted from NNP, whichever is the higher. The resulting figures will yield an approximation of the impact of the government's fiscal affairs on the economy. A more precise estimate, as we have seen, would compare total depredations proper with gross private product. In subtracting government expenditures from the gross national product, we note that government transfer payments are included in this deduction. Professor John Dew would dispute this procedure on the ground that transfer activities are not included in the national product figures. But the important consideration is that taxes and deficits to finance transfer payments do act as a drain on the national product and therefore must be subtracted from NNP to yield PPR. Engaging the relative size of governmental vis-à-vis -vis private activity, Dew warns that the sum of governmental expenditures should not include transfer payments, which merely shift purchasing power without using up resources. Yet this mere shift is as much a burden upon the producers, as much a shift from voluntary production to state-created privilege, as any other governmental expenditure. Chapter 6. Anti-Market Ethics. A Praxeological Critique. 1. Introduction. Praxeological Criticism of Ethics. Praxeology, economics, 
provides no ultimate ethical judgments. It simply furnishes the indispensable data necessary to make such judgments. It is a formal but universally valid science based on the existence of human action and on logical deductions from that existence. And yet, praxeology may be extended beyond its current sphere to criticize ethical goals. This does not mean that we abandon the value neutrality of praxeological science. It means merely that even ethical goals must be framed meaningfully, and therefore that praxeology can criticize 1. existential errors made in the formulation of ethical propositions, and 2. the possible existential meaninglessness and inner inconsistency of the goals themselves. If an ethical goal can be shown to be self-contradictory and conceptually impossible of fulfillment, then the goal is clearly an absurd one, and should be abandoned by all. It should be noted that we are not disparaging ethical goals that may be practically unrealizable in a given historical situation, we do not reject the goal of abstention from robbery simply because it is not likely to be completely fulfilled in the near future. What we do propose to discard are those ethical goals that are conceptually impossible of fulfillment because of the inherent nature of man and of the universe. We therefore propose to place a restriction on the unlimited validity of anyone's ultimate ethical valuations. In doing so, we still are not pushing beyond the bounds of praxeology to function as ethicists, for we are not here attempting to establish a positive ethical system of our own, or even to prove that such a system is attainable. We believe only that praxeology should have the right of veto to discard any ethical propositions that fail to meet the test of conceptual possibility or internal consistency. Furthermore, we maintain that whenever an ethical goal has been shown to be conceptually impossible and therefore absurd, it is equally absurd to take measures to approach that ideal. It is illegitimate to concede that X is an absurd goal, and then to go on to say that we should take all possible measures to approach it at any rate. If the end is absurd, so is the approach toward that end. This is a praxeological truth derived from the law that a means can obtain its value only by being imputed from the end. In short, we are saying that the means must be justified by the end. What else but an end can justify a means? The common conception that the doctrine, the end justifies the means, is an immoral device of communists, is hopelessly confused. When, for example, people object to murder as a means to achieve goals, they are objecting to murder not because they do not believe that means are justified by ends, but because they have conflicting ends. For example, the end that murder not be committed. 
They may hold this view as an end in itself, or because it is a means to other ends, such as upholding each man's right to life. A drive toward X only obtains its value from the value of X itself. If the latter is absurd, then so is the former. There are two types of ethical criticisms that can be made of the free market system. One type is purely existential, that is, it rests on existential premises only. The other type advances conflicting ethical goals and protests that the free market does not attain these goals. Any mixture of the two will here be placed in the second category. The first type says, 1. The free market leads to consequence A. 2. I don't like consequence A, or consequence A is objectively unlikable. 3. Therefore, the free market should not be established. To refute this type of criticism, it is necessary only to refute the existential proposition in the first part of the argument, and this is, admittedly, a purely praxeological task. The following are brief summaries of very common criticisms of the free market that can be refuted praxeologically, and that, indeed, have been refuted, implicitly or explicitly, in other writings. 1. The free market causes business cycles and unemployment. Business cycles are caused by the governmental intervention of bank credit expansion. Unemployment is caused by unions or government keeping wage rates above the free market level. Only coercive intervention, not private spending, can bring about inflation. 2. The free market is likely to bring about monopoly and monopoly pricing. If we define monopoly as the single seller of a product, we founder on insoluble problems. We cannot identify homogeneous products except in the concrete day-to-day -day valuations of consumers. Furthermore, if we consider such monopoly as wicked, we must regard both Crusoe and Friday as vicious monopolists if they exchange fish and lumber on their desert island. But if Crusoe and Friday are not wicked, how can a more complex society, one necessarily less monopolistic in this sense, be at all wicked? At what point in the reduced scope of such monopoly can it be considered evil? And how can the market be held responsible for the number of people inhabiting the society? Moreover, Every individual striving to be better than his fellows is thereby trying to be a monopolist. Is this bad? Do not both he and the rest of society benefit from his better mousetrap? Finally, there is no conceptually identifiable monopoly or monopolistic price on the free market. Hence, a monopoly price, and a monopoly by any usable definition, arise only through the coercive grant of exclusive privilege by the government, and this includes all attempts to enforce competition. 3. 
The government must do what the people themselves cannot do. We have shown that no such cases can exist. There are other criticisms, however, which infuse various degrees of ethical protest into the argument. This chapter will be devoted to a praxeological critique of some of the most popular of these anti-market ethical contentions. 2. Knowledge of Self-Interest – An Alleged Critical Assumption This criticism of the market is more existential than ethical. It is the popular argument that laissez-faire, or the free market economy, rests its case on the crucial assumption that every individual knows his own self-interest best. Yet, it is charged, this is not true of many individuals. Therefore, the state must intervene, and the case for the free market is vitiated. The free market doctrine, however, does not rest on any such assumption. Like the mythical economic man, the perfectly wise individual is a straw man, created by the critics of the theory, not implied by it. First, it should be evident from our analysis of the free market and government intervention throughout this work that any argument for the free market rests on a far deeper and more complex doctrine. We cannot enter here into the many ethical and philosophical arguments for freedom. Secondly, the laissez-faire or free market doctrine does not assume that everyone always knows his own interest best. It asserts rather that everyone should have the right to be free to pursue his own interest as he deems best. Critics may argue that the government should force men to lose some ex-ante or present utility in order to gain ex-post-utility later by being compelled to pursue their own best interests. But libertarians may well reply in rebuttal, one, that a person's resentment at coercive interference will lower his ex-post-utility in any event and, two, that the condition of freedom is a vital, necessary prerequisite for a person's best interests to be attained. Indeed, the only lasting way to correct a person's errors is by persuasive reasoning. Force cannot do the job. As soon as the individual can evade this force, he will return to his own preferred ways. No one certainly has perfect foresight into the uncertain future, but free entrepreneurs on the market are better equipped than anyone else by incentive and by economic calculation to foresee and satisfy the needs of the consumers. But what if the consumers are mistaken with regard to their own interests? Obviously, they sometimes are but several more points must be made. In the first place, every individual knows the data of his own inner self best by the very fact that each has a separate mind and ego. 
Secondly, the individual, if in doubt about what his own true interests are, is free to hire and consult experts to give him advice based on their superior knowledge. The individual hires these experts and, on the market, can continuously test their helpfulness. Individuals on the market, in short, tend to patronize those experts whose advice proves most successful. Good doctors or lawyers reap rewards on the free market, while poor ones fail. But when government intervenes, the government expert acquires his revenue by compulsory levy. There is no market test of his success in teaching people their true interests. The only test is his success in acquiring the political support of the state's machinery of coercion. Thus, the privately hired expert flourishes in proportion to his ability, whereas the government expert flourishes in proportion to his success in currying political favor. Moreover, what incentive does the government expert have to care about the interests of his subjects? Surely he is not especially endowed with superior qualities by virtue of his government post. He is no more virtuous than the private expert. Indeed, he is inherently less capable and is more inclined to wield coercive force. But while the private expert has every pecuniary incentive to care about his clients or patients, the government expert has no incentive whatever. He obtains his revenue in any event. He is devoid of any incentive to worry about his subject's true interests. It is curious that people tend to regard government as a quasi-divine, selfless, Santa Claus organization. Government was constructed neither for ability nor the exercise of loving care. Government was built for the use of force and for necessarily demagogic appeals for votes. If individuals do not know their own interests in many cases, they are free to turn to private experts for guidance. It is absurd to say that they will be served better by a coercive, demagogic apparatus. Finally, the proponents of government intervention are trapped in a fatal contradiction. They assume that individuals are not competent to run their own affairs or to hire experts to advise them. And yet, they also assume that these same individuals are equipped to vote for these same experts at the ballot box. We have seen that, on the contrary, while most people have a direct idea and a direct test of their own personal interests on the market, they cannot understand the complex chains of praxeological and philosophical reasoning necessary for a choice of rulers or political policies. Yet this political sphere of open demagogy is precisely the only one where the mass of individuals are deemed to be competent. Interventionists assume the political, but no other, competence of the people even when they favor dictatorship rather than democracy. 
For if the people do not vote under a dictatorship, they still must accept the rule of the dictator and his experts. So the interventionists cannot escape this contradiction even if they give up democracy. 3. The Problem of Immoral Choices Some writers are astute enough to realize that the market economy is simply a resultant of individual valuations, and thus they see that if they do not like the results, the fault lies with the valuations, not the economic system. Yet they proceed to advocate government intervention to correct the immorality of individual choices. If people are immoral enough to choose whiskey rather than milk, cosmetics rather than educational matter, then the state, they say, should step in and correct these choices. Much of the rebuttal parallels the refutation of the knowledge of interests argument. That is, it is self-contradictory to contend that people cannot be trusted to make moral decisions in their daily lives but can be trusted to vote for or accept leaders who are morally wiser than they. Mises states, quite rightly, that anyone who advocates governmental dictation over one area of individual consumption must logically come to advocate complete totalitarian dictation over all choices. This follows if the dictators have any set of valuational principles whatever. Thus, if the members of the ruling group like Bach and hate Mozart, and they believe strongly that Mozartian music is immoral, they are just as right in prohibiting the playing of Mozart as they are in prohibiting drug use or liquor consumption. Many statists, however, would not balk at this conclusion and would be willing to take over this congenial task. The same total dictatorship over consumer choice is also implied by the knowledge of interest argument discussed earlier. As Thomas Barber astutely says, it is illegal for pleasure boaters to fail to carry a life preserver for every person on board. A great number of young men are publicly employed to go about and look for violators of this law. Pleasant for the young men, of course, but is it really any more the government's business that a man goes canoeing without a life preserver than that he goes out in the rain without his rubbers? The law is irritating to the individual concerned costly to the taxpayers, and turns a lot of potential producers into economic parasites, perhaps the manufacturers of life preservers engineered its passage. The utilitarian position that government dictation is bad because no rational ethics exists, and therefore no person has a right to impose his arbitrary values on someone else, is, we believe, an inadequate one. In the first place, it will not convince those who believe in a rational ethics, who believe that there is a scientific basis for moral judgments, and that they are not pure whim. And furthermore, the position involves a hidden moral assumption of its own, 
that A has no right to impose any arbitrary values on B. But if ends are arbitrary, is not the end that arbitrary whims not be imposed by coercion just as arbitrary? And suppose further that ranking high on A's value scale is the arbitrary whim of imposing his other values on B. Then the utilitarians cannot object and must abandon their attempt to defend individual liberty in a value-free manner. In fact, the utilitarians are helpless against the man who wants to impose his values by coercion and who persists in doing so even after the various economic consequences are pointed out to him. It is true that we do not advocate ends in this volume, and in that sense praxeology is utilitarian. But the difference is that utilitarianism would extend the Wertfrei injunction from its proper place in economics and praxeology to embrace all of rational discourse. The would-be dictator can be logically refuted in a completely different way, even while remaining within Wertfrei praxeological bounds. For what is the complaint of the would-be dictator against free individuals? That they act immorally in various ways. The dictator's aim, therefore, is to advance morality and combat immorality. Let us grant for the sake of argument that an objective morality can be arrived at. The question that must be faced, then, is, can force advance morality? Suppose we arrive at the demonstrable conclusion that actions A, B, and C are immoral, and actions X, Y, and Z are moral. And suppose we find that Mr. Jones shows a distressing propensity to value A, B, and C highly, and adopts these courses of action time and again. We are interested in transforming Mr. Jones from being an immoral person to being a moral person. How can we go about it? The statists answer, by force. We must prohibit at gunpoint Mr. Jones from doing A, B, and C. Then, at last, he will be moral. But will he? Is Jones moral because he chooses X when he is forcibly deprived of the opportunity to choose A? When Smith is confined to a prison, is he being moral because he doesn't spend his time in saloons getting drunk? There is no sense to any concept of morality, regardless of the particular moral action one favors, if a man is not free to do the immoral as well as the moral thing. If a man is not free to choose, if he is compelled by force to do the moral thing, then, on the contrary, he is being deprived of the opportunity of being moral. He has not been permitted to weigh the alternatives, to arrive at his own conclusions, and to take his stand. If he is deprived of free choice, he is acting under the dictator's will, rather than his own. Of course, he could choose to be shot, 
but this is hardly an intelligible conception of free choice of alternatives. In fact, he then has only one free choice, the hegemonic one, to be shot or to obey the dictator in all things. Dictatorship over consumers' choices, then, can only atrophy morality rather than promote it. There is but one way that morality can spread from the enlightened to the unenlightened, and that is by rational persuasion. If A convinces B through the use of reason that his moral values are correct and B's are wrong, then B will change and adopt the moral course of his own free will. To say that this method is a slower procedure is beside the point. The point is that morality can spread only through peaceful persuasion, and that the use of force can only erode and impair morality. We have not even mentioned other facts that strengthen our argument, such as the great difficulty in enforcing dictatorial rules against people whose values clash with them. The man who prefers the immoral course and is prevented by the bayonet from acting on his preference will do his best to find ways to circumvent the prohibition, perhaps by bribing the bayoneteer. And because this is not a treatise on ethics, we have not mentioned the libertarian ethical theory, which holds that the use of coercion is itself the highest form of immorality. Thus we have shown that would-be dictators must necessarily fail to achieve their professed goal of advancing morality, because the consequences will be precisely the opposite. It is possible, of course, that the dictators are not really sincere in stating their goal. Perhaps their true purpose is to wield power over others and to prevent others from being happy. In that case, of course, praxeology can say no more about the matter, although ethics may find a good deal to say. Mises often states that interventionary measures in the market, for example, price controls, will have consequences that even the government officials administering the plans would consider bad. But the problem is that we do not know what the government officials' ends are, except that they demonstrably do like the power they have acquired and the wealth they have extracted from the public. Surely these considerations may often prove paramount in their minds, and we therefore cannot say that government officials would invariably concede, after learning all the consequences, that their actions were mistaken. 4. The Morality of Human Nature It is very common to assert that the advocates of the purely free market make one fundamental and shaky assumption, that all human beings are angels. In a society of angels, it is commonly agreed, such a program could work, but not in our fallible world. The chief difficulty with this criticism is that no libertarian, except possibly those under Tolstoyan influence, has ever made such an assumption. The advocates of the free market have not assumed a reformation of human nature, 
although they would certainly have no objection to such a reformation if it took place, we have seen that libertarians envision defense services against predators as provided by private bodies rather than by the state, but they do not assume that crime would magically disappear in the free society. Statists concede to libertarians that no state would be required if all men were good. State control is allegedly required only to the extent that men are evil. But what if all men were evil? As F. A. Harper has pointed out, still using the same principle that political rulership should be employed to the extent of the evil in man, we would then have a society in which complete political rulership of all the affairs of everybody would be called for. One man would rule all, but who would serve as the dictator? However, he were to be selected and affixed to the political throne, he would surely be a totally evil person, since all men are evil, and this society would then be ruled by a totally evil dictator possessed of total political power. And how, in the name of logic, could anything short of total evil be its consequence? How could it be better than having no political rulership at all in that society? Is this argument unrealistic? Because, as everyone agrees, human beings are a compound capable of both good and evil. But then, at what point in this mixture does state dictation become necessary? In fact, the libertarian would reason that the fact that human nature is a mixture of both good and evil provides its own particular argument in his favor. For if man is such a mixture, then the best societal framework is surely one in which evil is discouraged and the good encouraged. The libertarian maintains that the existence of the state apparatus provides a ready, swift channel for the exercise of evil, since the rulers of the state are thereby legitimated and can wield compulsion in ways that no one else is permitted to do. What is considered crime socially is called exercise of democratic power when performed by an individual as a state official. The purely free market, on the other hand, eliminates all legitimated channels for the exercise of power over man. 5. The Impossibility of Equality Probably the most common ethical criticism of the market economy is that it fails to achieve the goal of equality. Equality has been championed on various economic grounds, such as minimum social sacrifice or the diminishing marginal utility of money. But in recent years, economists have recognized that they cannot justify egalitarianism by economics, that they ultimately need an ethical basis for equality. Economics, or praxeology, cannot establish the validity of ethical ideals, but even ethical goals must be framed meaningfully. They must, therefore, pass muster before praxeology as being internally consistent and conceptually possible. 
The credentials of equality have so far not been adequately tested. It is true that many objections have been raised that give egalitarians pause. Sometimes realization of the necessary consequences of their policies causes an abandonment, though more often a slowing down, of the egalitarian program. Thus, compulsory equality will demonstrably stifle incentive, eliminate the adjustment processes of the market economy, destroy all efficiency in satisfying consumer wants, greatly lower capital formation, and cause capital consumption, all effects signifying a drastic fall in general standards of living. Furthermore, only a free society is casteless, and therefore only freedom will permit mobility of income according to productivity. Statism, on the other hand, is likely to freeze the economy into a mold of non-productive inequality. Yet these arguments, though powerful, are by no means conclusive. Some people will pursue equality anyway. Many will take these considerations into account by settling for some cuts in living standards in order to gain more equality. In all discussions of equality, it is considered self-evident that equality is a very worthy goal. But this is by no means self-evident. For the very goal of equality itself is open to serious challenge. The doctrines of praxeology are deduced from three universally acceptable axioms. The major axiom of the existence of purposive human action and the minor postulates, or axioms, of the diversity of human skills and natural resources, and the disutility of labor. Although it is possible to construct an economic theory of a society without these two minor axioms, but not without the major one, they are included in order to limit our theorizing to laws that can apply directly to reality. Anyone who wants to set forth a theory applicable to interchangeable human beings is welcome to do so. Thus, the diversity of mankind is a basic postulate of our knowledge of human beings. But if mankind is diverse and individuated, then how can anyone propose equality as an ideal? Every year, scholars hold conferences on equality and call for greater equality, and no one challenges the basic tenet. But what justification can equality find in the nature of man? If each individual is unique, how else can he be made equal to others than by destroying most of what is human in him and reducing human society to the mindless uniformity of the ant heap? It is the task of the egalitarian who confidently enters the scene to inform the economist of his ultimate ethical goal to prove his case. He must show how equality can be compatible with the nature of mankind and must defend the feasibility of a possible egalitarian world. But the egalitarian is in even direr straits. 
for it can be shown that equality of income is an impossible goal for mankind. Income can never be equal. Income must be considered, of course, in real and not in money terms. Otherwise, there would be no true equality. Yet real income can never be equalized. For how can a New Yorker's enjoyment of the Manhattan skyline be equalized with an Indian's? How can the New Yorker swim in the Ganges as well as an Indian? Since every individual is necessarily situated in a different space, every individual's real income must differ from good to good and from person to person. There is no way to combine goods of different types, to measure some income level, so it is meaningless to try to arrive at some sort of equal level. The fact must be faced that equality cannot be achieved because it is a conceptually impossible goal for man, by virtue of his necessary dispersion in location and diversity among individuals. But if equality is an absurd and therefore irrational goal, then any effort to approach equality is correspondingly absurd. If a goal is pointless, then any attempt to attain it is similarly pointless. Many people believe that though equality of income is an absurd ideal, it can be replaced by the ideal of equality of opportunity. Yet this, too, is as meaningless as the former concept. How can the New Yorker's opportunity and the Indian's opportunity to sail around Manhattan or to swim in the Ganges be equalized? Man's inevitable diversity of location effectively eliminates any possibility of equalizing opportunity. Bloom and Calvin lapse into a common error when they state that justice connotes equality of opportunity, and that this equality requires that the contestants start from the same mark, so that the game be fair. Human life is not some sort of race or game in which each person should start from an identical mark. It is an attempt by each man to be as happy as possible, and each person could not begin from the same point, for the world has not just come into being. It is diverse and infinitely varied in its parts. The mere fact that one individual is necessarily born in a different place from someone else immediately ensures that his inherited opportunity cannot be the same as his neighbor's. The drive for equality of opportunity would also require the abolition of the family, since different parents have unequal abilities. It would require the communal rearing of children. The state would have to nationalize all babies and raise them in state nurseries under equal conditions. But even here, Conditions cannot be the same, because different state officials will themselves have different abilities and personalities, and equality can never be achieved because of necessary differences of location.
Thus the egalitarian must not be permitted any longer to end discussion by simply proclaiming equality as an absolute ethical goal. He must first face all the social and economic consequences of egalitarianism and try to show that it does not clash with the basic nature of man. He must counter the argument that man is not made for a compulsory ant-heap existence. And finally, he must recognize that the goals of equality of income and equality of opportunity are conceptually unrealizable and are therefore absurd. Any drive to achieve them is ipso facto absurd as well. Egalitarianism is, therefore, a literally senseless social philosophy. Its only meaningful formulation is the goal of equality of liberty, formulated by Herbert Spencer in his famous Law of Equal Freedom. Every man has freedom to do all he wills, provided he infringes not the equal freedom of any other man. This goal does not attempt to make every individual's total condition equal, an absolutely impossible task. Instead, it advocates liberty, a condition of absence of coercion over person and property for every man. This goal has sometimes been phrased as equality before the law or equality of rights, Yet both formulations are ambiguous and misleading. The former could be taken to mean equality of slavery as well as liberty, and has, in fact, been so narrowed down in recent years as to be of minor significance. The latter could be interpreted to mean any sort of right, including the right to an equal income. Yet even this formulation of equality has many flaws and could profitably be discarded. In the first place, it opens the door for ambiguity and for egalitarianism. In the second place, the term equality connotes measurable identity with a fixed extensive unit. Equal length means identity of measurement with an objectively determinable unit. In the study of human action, whether in praxeology or social philosophy, there is no such quantitative unit, and hence there can be no such equality. Far better to say that each man should have X than to say that all men should be equal in X. If someone wants to urge every man to buy a car, he formulates his goal in that way. Every man should buy a car, rather than in such terms as, all men should have equality in car buying. The use of the term equality is awkward, as well as misleading. And finally, as Clara Dixon Davidson pointed out so cogently many years ago, Spencer's law of equal freedom is redundant. For if every man has freedom to do all that he wills, it follows from this very premise that no man's freedom has been infringed or invaded. The whole second clause of the law after wills is redundant and unnecessary. 
Since the formulation of Spencer's law, opponents of Spencer have used the qualifying clause to drive holes into the libertarian philosophy. Yet all this time they were hitting at an encumbrance, not at the essence of the law. The concept of equality has no rightful place in the law of equal freedom, being replaceable by the logical quantifier, every. The law of equal freedom could well be renamed the law of total freedom. 6. The Problem of Security One of the most common ethical charges leveled at the free market is that it fails to provide security. It is said that the blessings of freedom must be weighed against the competing blessings of security, to be provided, of course, by the state. The first comment to make is that this world is a world of uncertainty. We shall never be able to forecast the future course of the world with precision. Every action, therefore, involves risk. This risk cannot be eliminated. The man who keeps cash balances suffers the risk that its purchasing power may dwindle. The man who invests suffers the risk of loss, and so forth. Yet the free market finds ways of voluntarily relieving risk as much as can possibly be done. In a free society, there are three prime ways that men can alleviate uncertainty about the future. 1. By savings. These savings, whether invested in production or kept in cash balances, ensure money for future needs. Investing in production increases one's future assets. Cash balances ensure that funds will be immediately available. 2. By Entrepreneurship The entrepreneurs, that is, the capitalist entrepreneurs, assume the bulk of the risks of the market and, concomitantly, relieve laborers of a great deal of risk. Imagine the universal risk if laborers could not be paid until the final product reached the consumers. The pain of waiting for future income, the risk in attempting to forecast consumer demands in the future, would be almost intolerable, especially for those laborers toiling in the most remote processes of production. It is difficult to see how anyone would embark on longer processes of production if he were forced to wait the entire length of the production period to earn any income. But the capitalist entrepreneur pays him, instead, immediately, and himself adopts the burden of waiting and forecasting future wants. The entrepreneur then risks loss of his capital. Another method of entrepreneurial assumption of risk takes place in futures markets, where hedging allows buyers and sellers of commodities to shift the risk of future price changes onto a body of specialized traders. 3. Buy insurance. Insurance is a basic method of pooling and abating risks on the market. 
While entrepreneurs assume the burdens of uncertainty, insurance takes care of actuarial risks, where stable collective frequencies can be arrived at and premiums can be charged accordingly. The state cannot provide absolute security. The slaves may have believed that their security was guaranteed by their master, but the master assumed the risk. If his income fell, then he could not provide security for his charges. A fourth way to provide security in a free society is by voluntary charity. This charity of necessity comes out of production. It has been maintained that the state can provide security for the people better than the market because it can guarantee a minimum income for everyone. Yet the government can do no such thing. The state produces nothing. It can only confiscate the production of others. The state, therefore, can guarantee nothing. If the requisite minimum is not produced, the state will have to default on its pledges. Of course, the state can print all the money it wants, but it cannot produce the needed goods. Furthermore, the state cannot in this way provide security for every man alike. It can make some secure only at the expense of others. If A can be made more secure only by robbing B, B is made more insecure in the process. Hence, the state, even if production is not drastically reduced, cannot provide security for all, but only for some at the expense of others. Is there no way, then, that government, organized coercion, can provide security? Yes, but not in the absolute sense. Rather, it can provide a certain aspect of security, and only this aspect can be guaranteed to every man in the society. This is security against aggression. In fact, however, only a voluntary free market defense can provide this, since only such a non-status type of defense agency does not itself engage in aggression. With each man acquiring security of person and property against attack, productivity and leisure are both immeasurably increased. Any state attempt to provide such security is an anachronism, since the state itself constantly invades individual liberty and security. That type of security, then, which is open to every man in society, is not only compatible with, but is a corollary to, perfect freedom. Freedom and security against aggression are two sides of the same coin. It might still be objected that many people, even knowing that slavery or submission to dictation cannot bring absolute security, will still wish to rely on masters. But if they do so voluntarily, the libertarian asks, why must they force others who do not choose to submit to masters to join them? 7. Alleged Joys of the Society of Status 
One common related criticism of the free market and free society, particularly among intellectuals who are conspicuously not craftsmen or peasants, is that, in contrast to the happy craftsmen and happy peasants of the Middle Ages, it has alienated man from his work and from his fellows, and has robbed him of his sense of belonging. The status society of the Middle Ages is looked back upon as a golden age, when everyone was sure of his station in life, when craftsmen made the whole shoe instead of just contributing to part of its production, and when these whole laborers were enmeshed in a sense of belonging with the rest of society. In the first place, the society of the Middle Ages was not a secure one, not a fixed, unchanging hierarchy of status. There was little progress, but there was much change. Dwelling as they did in clusters of local self-sufficiency marked by a low standard of living, the people were ever threatened by famine— and because of the relative absence of trade, a famine in one area could not be countered by purchasing food from another area. The absence of famine in capitalist society is not a providential coincidence. Secondly, because of the low living standards, very few members of the population were lucky enough to be born into the status of the happy craftsman, who could be really happy and secure in his work only if he were a craftsman to the king or the nobility, who, of course, earned their high status by the decidedly unhappy practice of permanent violence in domination over the mass of the exploited population. As for the common serf, one wonders whether, in his poverty-stricken, enslaved, and barren existence, he had even sufficient time and leisure to contemplate the supposed joys of his fixed post and his sense of belonging and if there were a serf or two who did not wish to belong to his lord or master, that belonging, of course, was enforced by violence. Aside from these considerations, there is another problem which the society of status cannot surmount, and which indeed contributed a great deal to breaking up the feudal and mercantilist structures of the pre-capitalistic era, this was population growth. If everyone is assigned his appointed and inherited role in life, how can an increased population be fitted into the scheme? Where are they to be assigned, and who is to do the assigning? And wherever they are allocated, how can these new people be prevented from disrupting the whole assigned network of custom and status? In short, it is precisely in the fixed, non-capitalistic society of status that the Malthusian problem is ever-present, at its ugliest, and where Malthusian checks to population must come into play. Sometimes the check is the natural one of famine and plague. In other societies, systematic infanticide is practiced. Perhaps if there were a modern return to the society of status, compulsory birth control would be the rule, a not impossible prognosis for the future. 
But in pre-capitalist Europe, the population problem became a problem of an ever-increasing number of people with no work to do and no place to go, who therefore had to turn to begging or highway robbery. The proponents of the theory of modern alienation do not offer any reasoning to back up their assertions, which are therefore simply dogmatic myths. Certainly it is not self-evident that the craftsman, or better still, the primitive man who made everything that he consumed, was in some sense happier or more whole as a result of this experience. Although this is not a treatise on psychology, it might be noted that perhaps what gives the worker his sense of importance is his participation in what Isabel Patterson has called the circuit of production. In free market capitalism, he can, of course, participate in that circuit in many more and varied ways than he could in the more primitive status society. Furthermore, the status society is a tragic waste of potential skill for the individual worker. There is, after all, no reason why the son of a carpenter should be particularly interested or skilled in carpentry. In the status society, he faces only a dreary life of carpentry, regardless of his desires. In the free market, capitalist society, though he is, of course, not guaranteed that he will be able to make a livelihood in any line of work that he wants to pursue, his opportunities to do work that he really likes are immeasurably, almost infinitely, expanded. As the division of labor expands, there are more and more varieties of skilled occupations that he can engage in, instead of having to be content with only the most primitive skills. And in the free society, he is free to try these tasks, free to move into whatever area he likes best. He has no freedom and no opportunity in the allegedly joyful society of status. Just as free capitalism enormously expanded the amount and variety of consumers' goods and services available to mankind, so it vastly expanded the number and variety of jobs to be done, and the skills that people can develop. The hullabaloo about alienation is, in fact, more than a glorification of the medieval craftsman. He, after all, bought his food from the nearby land. It is actually an attack on the whole concept of the division of labor and an enshrining of primitive self-sufficiency. A return to such conditions could mean only the eradication of the bulk of today's population and complete impoverishment for those remaining. Why happiness would nonetheless increase, we leave to the mythologists of status. But there is one final consideration which indicates that the vast majority of the people do not believe that they need primitive conditions and the slave's sense of belonging to make them happy. For there is nothing in a free society to prevent those who wish from going off in separate communities and living primitively and belongingly. No one is forced to join the specialized division of labor. 
Not only has almost no one abandoned modern society to return to a happy, integrated life of fixed poverty, but those few intellectuals who did form communal utopias of one sort or another during the 19th century abandoned these attempts very quickly, and perhaps the most conspicuous non-withdrawers from society are those very critics who use our modern alienated mass communications to denounce modern society. As we indicated at the end of the last section, a free society permits any who wish to enslave themselves to others to do so. But if they have a psychological need for a slave's sense of belonging, why must other individuals without such a need be coerced into enslavement? 8. Charity and Poverty A common complaint is that the free market would not ensure the elimination of poverty, that it would leave people free to starve, and that it is far better to be kind-hearted and give charity free reign by taxing the rest of the populace in order to subsidize the poor and the substandard. In the first place, the freedom-to-starve argument confuses the war against nature, which we all conduct, with the problem of freedom from interference by other persons. We are always free to starve unless we pursue our conquest of nature, for that is our natural condition. But freedom refers to absence of molestation by other persons. It is purely an interpersonal problem. Secondly, it should also be clear that it is precisely voluntary exchange and free capitalism that have led to an enormous improvement in living standards. Capitalist production is the only method by which poverty can be wiped out. As we stressed, production must come first and only freedom allows people to produce in the best and most efficient way possible. Force and violence may distribute, but it cannot produce. Intervention hampers production, and socialism cannot calculate. Since production of consumer satisfactions is maximized on the free market, the free market is the only way to abolish poverty. Dictates and legislation cannot do so. In fact, they can only make matters worse. The appeal to charity is a truly ironic one. First, it is hardly charity to take wealth by force and hand it over to someone else. Indeed, this is the direct opposite of charity, which can only be an unbought, voluntary act of grace. Compulsory confiscation can only deaden charitable desires completely, as the wealthier grumble that there is no point in giving to charity when the state has already taken on the task. This is another illustration of the truth that men can become more moral only through rational persuasion, not through violence, which will, in fact, have the opposite effect. 
Furthermore, since the state is always inefficient, the amount and direction of the giving will be much different from what it would be if people were left free to act on their own. If the state decides from whom to take and to whom to give, the power residing in the state's hands is enormous. It is obvious that political unfortunates will be the ones whose property is confiscated, and political favorites the ones subsidized. And in the meantime, the state erects a bureaucracy whose living is acquired by feeding off the confiscation of one group and the encouraged mendicancy of another. Other consequences follow from a regime of compulsory charity. For one thing, the poor, or the deserving poor, have been exalted as a privileged caste with an enforceable claim to the production of the more able. This is a far cry from a request for charity. Instead, the able are penalized and enslaved by the state, and the unable are placed on a moral pedestal. Certainly this is a peculiar sort of moral program. The further consequence will be to discourage the able, to reduce production and saving in all of society, and beyond this, to subsidize the creation of a caste of poor. Not only will the poor be subsidized by right, but their ranks will be encouraged to multiply, both through reproduction and through their moral exaltation and subsidization, the able will be correspondingly hampered and repressed. Whereas the opportunity for voluntary charity acts as a spur to production by the able, coerced charity acts as a drain and a burden upon production. In fact, in the long run, the greatest charity is precisely not what we know by that name, but rather simple, selfish capital investment and the search for technological innovations. Poverty has been tamed by the enterprise and the capital investment of our ancestors, most of which was undoubtedly done for selfish motives. This is a fundamental illustration of the truth enunciated by Adam Smith, that we generally help others most in those very activities in which we help ourselves. Statists, in fact, are really opposed to charity. They often argue that charity is demeaning and degrading to the recipient, and that he should therefore be taught that the money is rightly his, to be given to him by the government as his due. But this oft-felt degradation stems, as Isabel Patterson pointed out, from the fact that the recipient of charity is not self-supporting on the market and that he is out of the production circuit, and no longer providing a service in exchange for one received. However, granting him the moral and legal right to mulk his fellows increases his moral degradation instead of ending it, for the beneficiary is now further removed from the production line than ever. 
An act of charity, when given voluntarily, is generally considered temporary and offered with the object of helping a man to help himself. But when the dole is ladled out by the state, it becomes permanent and perpetually degrading, keeping the recipients in a state of subservience. We are not attempting to argue at this point that to be subservient in this way is degrading. We simply say that anyone who considers private charity degrading must logically conclude that state charity is far more so. The devotion of government to charity may be gauged by its universal repression of mendicancy. A direct gift to a beggar helps the recipient directly and leaves no opportunity for large bureaucratic organizations to live full-time off the transaction. Harassment of direct aid, then, functions as a grant of monopolistic privilege to the official charity organizations. Isabel Patterson points out that the American government imposed a requirement of minimum cash assets for immigrants as an alleged way of helping the poorer immigrants. The actual effect, of course, was to keep the poorest immigrants who could not meet the requirement from American shores and economic opportunity. Mises, furthermore, points out that free market exchange, always condemned by statists for being impersonal and unfeeling, is precisely the relation that avoids all degradation and subservience. 9. The Charge of Selfish Materialism one of the most common charges leveled against the free market, even by many of its friends, is that it reflects and encourages unbridled, selfish materialism. Even if the free market, unhampered capitalism, best furthers man's material ends, critics argue, it distracts man from higher ideals. It leads man away from spiritual or intellectual values and atrophies any spirit of altruism. In the first place, there is no such thing as an economic end. Economy is simply a process of applying means to whatever ends a person may adopt. An individual can aim at any ends he pleases, selfish or altruistic. Other psychic factors being equal, it is to everyone's self-interest to maximize his monetary income on the market. But this maximum income can then be used for selfish or for altruistic ends. Which ends people pursue is of no concern to the praxeologist. A successful businessman can use his money to buy a yacht or to build a home for destitute orphans. The choice rests with him, but the point is that whichever goal he pursues, he must first earn the money before he can attain the goal. Secondly, whichever moral philosophy we adopt, whether altruism or egoism, we cannot criticize the pursuit of monetary income on the market. 
If we hold an egoistic social ethic, then obviously we can only applaud the maximization of monetary income, or of a mixture of monetary and other psychic income, on the market. There is no problem here. However, even if we adopt an altruistic ethic, we must applaud maximization of monetary income just as fervently, for market earnings are a social index of one's services to others, at least in the sense that any services are exchangeable. The greater a man's income, the greater has been his service to others. Indeed, it should be far easier for the altruist to applaud the maximization of a man's monetary income than that of his psychic income, when this is in conflict with the former goal. Thus, the consistent altruist must condemn the refusal of a man to work at a job paying high wages and his preference for a lower-paying job somewhere else. This man, whatever his reason, is defying the signaled wishes of the consumers, his fellows in society. If, then, a coal miner shifts to a more pleasant but lower-paying job as a grocery clerk, the consistent altruist must castigate him for depriving his fellow man of needed benefits, for the consistent altruist must face the fact that monetary income on the market reflects services to others, whereas psychic income is a purely personal or selfish gain. This analysis applies directly to the pursuit of leisure. Leisure, as we have seen, is a basic consumer's good for mankind, Yet the consistent altruist would have to deny each worker any leisure at all, or at least deny every hour of leisure beyond what is strictly necessary to maintain his output, for every hour spent in leisure reduces the time a man can spend serving his fellows. The consistent advocates of consumers' sovereignty would have to favor enslaving the idler or the man who prefers following his own pursuits to serving the consumer. Rather than scorn pursuit of monetary gain, the consistent altruist should praise the pursuit of money on the market and condemn any conflicting non-monetary goals a producer may have, whether it be dislike for certain work, enthusiasm for work that pays less, or a desire for leisure. It is also peculiar that critics generally concentrate their fire on profits, the profit motive, and not on other market incomes, such as wages. It is difficult to see any sense whatever in moral distinctions between these incomes. Altruists who criticize monetary aims on the market, therefore, are wrong on their own terms. The charge of materialism is also fallacious. The market deals not necessarily in material goods, but in exchangeable goods. It is true that all material goods are exchangeable, except for human beings themselves, 
but there are also many non-material goods exchanged on the market. A man may spend his money on attending a concert or hiring a lawyer, for example, as well as on food or automobiles. There is absolutely no ground for saying that the market economy fosters either material or immaterial goods. It simply leaves every man free to choose his own pattern of spending. Finally, an advancing market economy satisfies more and more of people's desires for exchangeable goods. As a result, the marginal utility of exchangeable goods tends to decline over time, while the marginal utility of non-exchangeable goods increases. In short, the greater satisfaction of exchangeable values confers a much greater marginal significance on the non-exchangeable values. Rather than foster material values, then, advancing capitalism does just the opposite. 10. Back to the Jungle? Many critics complain that the free market, in casting aside inefficient entrepreneurs or in other decisions, proves itself an impersonal monster. The free market economy, they charge, is the rule of the jungle, where survival of the fittest is the law. Libertarians who advocate a free market are therefore called social Darwinists, who wish to exterminate the weak for the benefit of the strong. In the first place, these critics overlook the fact that the operation of the free market is vastly different from governmental action. When a government acts, individual critics are powerless to change the result. They can do so only if they can finally convince the rulers that their decision should be changed. This may take a long time or be totally impossible. On the free market, however, there is no final decision imposed by force. Everyone is free to shape his own decisions and thereby significantly change the results of the market. In short, whoever feels that the market has been too cruel to certain entrepreneurs or to other income receivers is perfectly free to set up an aid fund for suitable gifts and grants. Those who criticize existing private charity as being insufficient are perfectly free to fill the gap themselves. We must beware of hypostatizing the market as a real entity, a maker of inexorable decisions. The market is the resultant of the decisions of all individuals in the society. People can spend their money in any way they please and can make any decisions whatever concerning their persons and their property. They do not have to battle against or convince some entity known as the market before they can put their decisions into effect. The free market, in fact, is precisely the diametric opposite of the jungle society. The jungle is characterized by the war of all against all. One man gains only at the expense of another, by seizure of the latter's property. 
With all on a subsistence level, there is a true struggle for survival, with the stronger force crushing the weaker. In the free market, on the other hand, one man gains only through serving another, though he may also retire into self-sufficient production at a primitive level if he so desires. It is precisely through the peaceful cooperation of the market that all men gain through the development of the division of labor and capital investment. To apply the principle of the survival of the fittest to both the jungle and the market is to ignore the basic question, fitness for what? The fit in the jungle are those most adept at the exercise of brute force. The fit on the market are those most adept in the service of society. The jungle is a brutish place, where some seize from others, and all live at the starvation level. The market is a peaceful and productive place, where all serve themselves and others at the same time, and live at infinitely higher levels of consumption. On the market, the charitable can provide aid, a luxury that cannot exist in the jungle. The free market, therefore, transmutes the jungle's destructive competition for meager subsistence into a peaceful cooperative competition in the service of oneself and others. In the jungle, some gain only at the expense of others. On the market, everyone gains. It is the market, the contractual society, that wrests order out of chaos, that subdues nature and eradicates the jungle, that permits the weak to live productively, or out of gifts from production in a regal style compared to the life of the strong in the jungle. Furthermore, the market, by raising living standards, permits man the leisure to cultivate the very qualities of civilization that distinguish him from the brutes. It is precisely statism that is bringing back the rule of the jungle, bringing back conflict, disharmony, caste struggle, conquest, and the war of all against all, and general poverty. In place of the peaceful struggle of competition in mutual service, statism substitutes calculational chaos and the death struggle of social Darwinist competition for political privilege and for limited subsistence. 11. Power and Coercion A. Other Forms of Coercion Economic Power a very common criticism of the libertarian position runs as follows. Of course, we do not like violence, and libertarians perform a useful service in stressing its dangers. But you are very simplistic because you ignore the other significant forms of coercion exercised in society, private coercive power, apart from the violence wielded by the state or the criminal. The government should stand ready to employ its coercion to check or offset this private coercion.
In the first place, this seeming difficulty for libertarian doctrine may quickly be removed by limiting the concept of coercion to the use of violence. This narrowing would have the further merit of strictly confining the legalized violence of the police and the judiciary to the sphere of its competence, combating violence. But we can go even further, for we can show the inherent contradictions in the broader concept of coercion. A well-known type of private coercion is the vague but ominous-sounding economic power. A favorite illustration of the wielding of such power is the case of a worker fired from his job, especially by a large corporation. Is this not as bad as violent coercion against the property of the worker? Is this not another, subtler form of robbery of the worker, since he is being deprived of money that he would have received if the employer had not wielded his economic power? Let us look at this situation closely. What exactly has the employer done? He has refused to continue to make a certain exchange, which the worker preferred to continue making. Specifically, A, the employer, refuses to sell a certain sum of money in exchange for the purchase of B's labor services. B would like to make a certain exchange. A would not. The same principle may apply to all the exchanges throughout the length and breadth of the economy. A worker exchanges labor for money with an employer. A retailer exchanges eggs for money with a customer. A patient exchanges money with a doctor for his services, and so forth. Under a regime of freedom, where no violence is permitted, every man has the power either to make or not to make exchanges as and with whom he sees fit. Then, when exchanges are made, both parties benefit. We have seen that if an exchange is coerced, at least one party loses. It is doubtful whether even a robber gains in the long run, for a society in which violence and tyranny are practiced on a large scale will so lower productivity and become so much infected with fear and hate that even the robbers may be unhappy when they compare their lot with what it might be if they engaged in production and exchange in the free market. Economic power, then, is simply the right under freedom to refuse to make an exchange. Every man has this power. Every man has the same right to refuse to make a proffered exchange. Now, it should become evident that the middle-of-the-road statist, who concedes the evil of violence, but adds that the violence of government is sometimes necessary to counteract the private coercion of economic power, is caught in an impossible contradiction. A refuses to make an exchange with B. What are we to say, or what is the government to do, if B brandishes a gun and orders A to make the exchange? This is the crucial question. There are only two positions we may take on the matter. 
either that B is committing violence and should be stopped at once, or that B is perfectly justified in taking this step because he is simply counteracting the subtle coercion of economic power wielded by A. Either the defense agency must rush to the defense of A, or it deliberately refuses to do so, perhaps aiding B or doing B's work for him. There is no middle ground. B is committing violence. There is no question about that. In the terms of both doctrines, this violence is either invasive and therefore unjust, or defensive and therefore just. If we adopt the economic power argument, we must choose the latter position. If we reject it, we must adopt the former. If we choose the economic power concept, we must employ violence to combat any refusal of exchange. If we reject it, we employ violence to prevent any violent imposition of exchange. There is no way to escape this either-or choice. The middle-of-the-road statist cannot logically say that there are many forms of unjustified coercion. He must choose one or the other and take his stand accordingly. Either he must say that there is only one form of illegal coercion, overt physical violence, or he must say that there is only one form of illegal coercion, refusal to exchange. We have already fully described the sort of society built on libertarian foundations, a society marked by peace, harmony, liberty, maximum utility for all, and progressive improvement in living standards. What would be the consequence of adopting the economic power premise? It would be a society of slavery. For what else is prohibiting the refusal to work? It would also be a society where the overt initiators of violence would be treated with kindness, while their victims would be upbraided as being really responsible for their own plight. Such a society would be truly a war of all against all, a world in which conquest and exploitation would rage unchecked. Let us analyze further the contrast between the power of violence and economic power, between, in short, the victim of a bandit and the man who loses his job with the Ford Motor Company. Let us symbolize in each case the alleged power wielder as P and the supposed victim as X. In the case of the bandit or robber, P plunders X. P lives, in short, by battening off X and all the other X's. This is the meaning of power in its original political sense. But what of economic power? Here, by contrast, X, the would-be employee, is asserting a strident claim to P's property. In this case, X is plundering P instead of the other way around. 
Those who lament the plight of the automobile worker who cannot obtain a job with Ford do not seem to realize that before Ford and without Ford there would be no such job to be obtained at all. No one, therefore, can have any sort of natural right to a Ford job, whereas it is meaningful to assert a natural right to liberty, a right which each person may have without depending on the existence of others, such as Ford. In short, the libertarian doctrine, which proclaims a natural right of defense against political power, is coherent and meaningful, but any proclaimed right of defense against economic power makes no sense at all. Here, indeed, are enormous differences between the two concepts of power. b. Power over nature and power over man. It is quite common and even fashionable to discuss market phenomena in terms of power, that is, in terms appropriate only to the battlefield. We have seen the fallacy of the back-to-the-jungle criticism of the market, and we have seen how the fallacious economic power concept has been applied to the exchange economy. Political power terminology, in fact, often dominates discussions of the market. Peaceful businessmen are economic royalists, economic feudalists, or robber barons. Business is called a system of power, and firms are private governments, and, if they are very large, even empires. Less luridly, men have bargaining power, and business firms engage in strategies and rivalry, as in military battles. Recently, theories of games and strategy have been erroneously applied to market activity, even to the absurd extent of comparing market exchange with a zero-sum game, an interrelation in which A's loss is precisely equal to B's gain. This, of course, is the action of coercive power, of conquest and robbery, there, one man's gain is another man's loss, one man's victory, another's defeat. Only conflict can describe these social relations. But the opposite is true on the free market, where everyone is a victor and everyone gains from social relations. The language and concepts of political power are singularly inappropriate in the free market society. The fundamental confusion here is the failure to distinguish between two very different concepts, power over nature and power over man. It is easy to see that an individual's power is his ability to control his environment in order to satisfy his wants. A man with an axe has the power to chop down a tree. A man with a factory has the power, along with other complementary factors, to produce capital goods. A man with a gun has the power to force an unarmed man to do his bidding, provided that the unarmed man chooses not to resist or not to accept death at gunpoint. 
It should be clear that there is a basic distinction between the two types of power. Power over nature is the sort of power on which civilization must be built. The record of man's history is the record of the advance or attempted advance of that power. Power over men, on the other hand, does not raise the general standard of living or promote the satisfactions of all, as does power over nature. By its very essence, only some men in society can wield power over men. Where power over man exists, some must be the powerful and others must be objects of power. But every man can and does achieve power over nature. In fact, if we look at the basic condition of man as he enters the world, it is obvious that the only way to preserve his life and advance himself is to conquer nature, to transform the face of the earth to satisfy his wants. From the point of view of all the members of the human race, it is obvious that only such a conquest is productive and life-sustaining. Power of one man over another cannot contribute to the advance of mankind. It can only bring about a society in which plunder has replaced production, hegemony has supplanted contract, Violence and conflict have taken the place of the peaceful order and harmony of the market. Power of one man over another is parasitic rather than creative, for it means that the nature conquerors are subjected to the dictation of those who conquer their fellow man instead. Any society of force, whether ruled by criminal bands or by an organized state, fundamentally means the rule of the jungle, or economic chaos. Furthermore, it would be a jungle, a struggle in the sense of the social Darwinists, in which the survivors would not really be the fittest, for the fitness of the victors would consist solely in their ability to prey on producers. They would not be the ones best fitted for advancing the human species. These are the producers, the conquerors of nature. The libertarian doctrine, then, advocates the maximization of man's power over nature and the eradication of the power of man over man. Statists, in elevating the latter power, often fail to realize that in their system man's power over nature would wither and become negligible. Albert J. Nock was aiming at this dichotomy when, in Our Enemy the State, he distinguished between social power and state power. Those who properly balk at any terms that seem to anthropomorphize society were wary of accepting this terminology. But actually, this distinction is a very important one. Knox's social power is society's, mankind's, conquest of nature, the power that has helped to produce the abundance that man has been able to wrest from the earth. His state power is political power, the use of the political means as against the economic means to wealth. 
State power is the power of man over man, the wielding of coercive violence by one group over another. Nock used these categories to analyze historical events in brilliant fashion. He saw the history of mankind as a race between social power and state power. Always man, led by the producers, has tried to advance the conquest of his natural environment. And always men, other men, have tried to extend political power in order to seize the fruits of this conquest over nature. History can, then, be interpreted as a race between social power and state power. In the more abundant periods, for example, after the Industrial Revolution, social power takes a large spurt ahead of political power, which has not yet had a chance to catch up. The stagnant periods are those in which state power has at last come to extend its control over the newer areas of social power. State power and social power are antithetical, and the former subsists by draining the latter. Clearly, the concepts advanced here, power over nature and power over man, are generalizations and clarifications of Knox categories. One problem may appear puzzling. What is the nature of purchasing power on the market? Is this not power over man, and yet social and on the free market? However, this contradiction is only apparent. Money has purchasing power only because other men are willing to accept it in exchange for goods, that is, because they are eager to exchange. The power to exchange rests, on both sides of the exchange, on production— and this is precisely the conquest of nature that we have been discussing. In fact, it is the exchange process, the division of labor, that permits man's power over nature to extend beyond the primitive level. It was power over nature that the Ford Motor Company had developed in such abundance— and it was this power that the angry job-seeker was threatening to seize by political power, while complaining about Ford's economic power. In sum, political power terminology should be applied only to those employing violence. The only private governments are those people and organizations aggressing against persons and property that are not part of the official state, dominating certain territory. These private states, or private governments, may either cooperate with the official state, as did the governments of the guilds in the Middle Ages, and as labor unions and cartelists do today, or they may compete with the official state and be designated as criminals or bandits. 12. The Problem of Luck A common criticism of free market decisions is that luck plays too great a role in determining incomes. 
Even those who concede that income to a factor tends to equal its discounted marginal value product to consumers, and that entrepreneurs on the free market will reduce mistakes to an absolute minimum, add that luck still plays a role in income determination. After charging that the market confers undue laurels on the lucky, the critic goes on to call for expropriation of the rich, or lucky, and subsidization of the poor, or unlucky. Yet how can luck be isolated and identified? It should be evident that it is impossible to do so. In every market action, luck is interwoven inextricably and is impossible to isolate. Consequently, there is no justification for saying that the rich are luckier than the poor. It might very well be that many or most of the rich have been unlucky and are getting less than their true DMVP, while most of the poor have been lucky and are getting more. No one can say what the distribution of luck is. Hence, there is no justification here for a redistribution policy. In only one place on the market does luck purely and identifiably determine the result. Gambling gains and losses. Here we refer to pure gambling, or games of chance, such as roulette, with no intermingled elements of skill, such as in racetrack betting. But is this what the statist critics really want? Confiscation of the gains of gambling winners in order to pay gambling losers. This would mean, of course, the speedy death of gambling, except as an illegal activity, for there would obviously be no point in continuing the games. Presumably, even the losers would object to being compensated, for they freely and voluntarily accepted the rules of chance before beginning to gamble. The governmental policy of neutralizing luck destroys the satisfaction that all the participants derive from the game. It is curious that so many economists, including Alfred Marshall, have proved the irrationality of gambling, for example, from the diminishing marginal utility of money, by first assuming, clearly erroneously, that the participants do not like to gamble. 13. The Traffic Manager Analogy Because of its popularity, we may briefly consider the traffic manager analogy, the doctrine that the government must obviously regulate the economy just as traffic must be regulated. It is high time that this flagrant non-sequitur be consigned to oblivion. Every owner necessarily regulates his own property. In the same way, every owner of a road will lay down the rules for the use of his road. Far from being an argument for statism, management is simply the attribute of all ownership. Those who own the roads will regulate their use. In the present day, the government owns most roads, and so regulates them. In a purely free market society, private owners would operate and control their own roads. 
Obviously, the traffic manager analogy can furnish no argument against the purely free market. 14. Over and Under Development Critics often level conflicting charges against the free market. The historicist-minded may concede that the free market is ideal for a certain stage of economic development, but insist that it is unsuited to other stages. Thus, advanced nations have been exhorted to embrace government planning because the modern economy is too complex to remain planless. The frontier is gone, and the economy is now mature. But, on the other hand, the backward countries have been told that they must adopt statist planning methods because of their relatively primitive state. So, any given economy is either too advanced or too backward for laissez-faire, and we may rest assured that the appointed moment for laissez-faire somehow never arrives. The currently fashionable economics of growth is an historicist regression. The laws of economics apply whatever the particular level of the economy. At any level, progressive change consists in a growing volume of capital per head of population and is furthered by the free market, low time preferences, far-seeing entrepreneurs, and sufficient labor and natural resources. Regressive change is brought about by the opposite conditions. The terms progressive and regressive change are far better than growth, a term expressing a misleading biological analogy that implies some actual law dictating that an economy must grow continually, and even at a fixed rate. Actually, of course, an economy can just as easily grow backward. The term underdeveloped is also unfortunate, as it implies that there is some level or norm that the economy should have reached but failed to reach because some external force did not develop it. The old-fashioned term, backward, though still normative, at least pins the blame for the relative poverty of an economy on the nation's own policies. The poor country can best progress by permitting private enterprise and investment to function, and by allowing natives and foreigners to invest there unhampered and unmolested. As for the rich country and its complexities, the delicate processes of the free market are precisely equipped to handle complex adjustments and interrelations far more efficiently than any form of statist planning. 15. The State and the Nature of Man since the problem of the nature of man has been raised, we may now turn briefly to an argument that has pervaded Roman Catholic social philosophy, namely that the state is part of the essential nature of man. This Thomistic view stems from Aristotle and Plato, who, in their quest for a rational ethic, leaped to the assumption that the state was the embodiment of the moral agency for mankind. 
that man should do such and such quickly became translated into the prescription, the state should do such and such. But nowhere is the nature of the state itself fundamentally examined. Typical is a work very influential in Catholic circles, Heinrich Roman's The State in Catholic Thought. Following Aristotle, Roman attempts to ground the state in the nature of man by pointing out that man is a social being. In proving that man's nature is best fitted for a society, he believes that he has gone far to provide a rationale for the state, but he has not done so in the slightest degree, once we fully realize that the state and society are by no means coextensive. The contention of libertarians that the state is an anti-social instrument must first be refuted before such a non-sequitur can be allowed. Roman recognizes that the state and society are distinct, but he still justifies the state by arguments that apply only to society. He also asserts the importance of law although the particular legal norms considered necessary are unfortunately not specified. Yet law and the state are not coextensive either, although this is a fallacy that very few writers avoid. Much Anglo-Saxon law grew out of the voluntarily adopted norms of the people themselves, common law, law merchant, etc., not as state legislation. Roman also stresses the importance for society of the predictability of action, which can be assured only by the state. Yet the essence of human nature is that it cannot be considered as truly predictable. Otherwise, we should be dealing not with free men, but with an ant heap. And if we could force men to march in unison according to a complete set of predictable norms, it is certainly not a foregone conclusion that we should all hail such an ideal. Some people would combat it bitterly. Finally, if the enforceable norm were limited to abstinence from aggression against others, one, a state is not necessary for such enforcement, as we have noted, and, two, the state's own inherent aggression itself violates that norm. 16. Human Rights and Property Rights It is often asserted by critics of the free market economy that they are interested in preserving human rights rather than property rights. This artificial dichotomy between human and property rights has often been refuted by libertarians, who have pointed out, a, that property rights of course accrue to humans and to humans alone, and b, that the human right to life requires the right to keep what one has produced to sustain and advance life. In short, they have shown that property rights are indissolubly also human rights. They have, besides, pointed out that the human right of a free press would be only a mockery in a socialist country, where the state owns and decides upon the allocation of newsprint and other newspaper capital. 
There are other points that should be made, however. For not only are property rights also human rights, but, in the most profound sense, there are no rights but property rights. The only human rights, in short, are property rights. There are several senses in which this is true. In the first place, each individual, as a natural fact, is the owner of himself, the ruler of his own person. The human rights of the person that are defended in the purely free market society are, in effect, each man's property right in his own being, and from this property right stems his right to the material goods that he has produced. In the second place, alleged human rights can be boiled down to property rights, although in many cases this fact is obscured. Take, for example, the human right of free speech. Freedom of speech is supposed to mean the right of everyone to say whatever he likes. But the neglected question is, where? Where does a man have this right? He certainly does not have it on property on which he is trespassing. In short, he has this right only either on his own property or on the property of someone who has agreed, as a gift or in a rental contract, to allow him on the premises. In fact, then, there is no such thing as a separate right to free speech. There is only a man's property right the right to do as he wills with his own, or to make voluntary agreements with other property owners. The concentration on vague and wholly human rights has not only obscured this fact, but has led to the belief that there are, of necessity, all sorts of conflicts between individual rights and alleged public policy or the public good. These conflicts have, in turn, led people to contend that no rights can be absolute, that they must all be relative and tentative. Take, for example, the human right of freedom of assembly. Suppose that a citizen's group wishes to demonstrate for a certain measure. It uses a street for this purpose. The police, on the other hand, break up the meeting on the ground that it obstructs traffic. Now, the point is that there is no way of resolving this conflict except arbitrarily, because the government owns the streets. Government ownership, as we have seen, inevitably breeds insoluble conflicts. For, on the one hand, the citizens' group can argue that they are taxpayers and are therefore entitled to use the streets for assembly, while, on the other hand, the police are right that traffic is obstructed. There is no rational way to resolve the conflict because there is, as yet, no true ownership of the valuable street resource. In a purely free society, where the streets are privately owned, the question would be simple. It would be for the street owner to decide and it would be the concern of the citizens' group to try to rent the street space voluntarily from the owner. 
If all ownership were private, it would be quite clear that the citizens did not have any nebulous right of assembly. Their right would be the property right of using their money in an effort to buy or rent space on which to make their demonstration, and they could do so only if the owner of the street agreed to the deal. Let us consider finally the classic case that is supposed to demonstrate that individual rights can never be absolute, but must be limited by public policy. Justice Holmes' famous dictum that no man can have the right to cry fire in a crowded theater. This is supposed to show that freedom of speech cannot be absolute, But if we cease dealing with this alleged human right and seek for the property rights involved, the solution becomes clear, and we see that there is no need at all to weaken the absolute nature of rights. For the person who falsely cries fire must be either the owner or the owner's agent or a guest or paying patron. If he is the owner, then he has committed fraud upon his customers. He has taken their money in exchange for a promise to put on a motion picture, and now, instead, he disrupts the performance by falsely shouting, Fire! and creating a disturbance among the patrons. He has thus willfully defaulted on his contractual obligation and has therefore violated the property rights of his patrons. Suppose, on the other hand, that the shouter is not the owner, but a patron. In that case, he is obviously violating the property right of the theater owner as well as the other patrons. As a guest, he is on the property on certain terms, and he has the obligation of not violating the owner's property rights by disrupting the performance that the owner is putting on for the patrons. The person who maliciously cries fire in a crowded theater, therefore, is a criminal not because his so-called right of free speech must be pragmatically restricted on behalf of the so-called public good, but because he has clearly and obviously violated the property rights of another human being. There is no need, therefore, of placing limits upon these rights. Since this is a praxeological and not an ethical treatise, the aim of this discussion has not been to convince the reader that property rights should be upheld. Rather, we have attempted to show that the person who does wish to construct his political theory on the basis of rights must not only discard the spurious distinction between human rights and property rights, but also realize that the former must all be absorbed into the latter. Appendix Professor Oliver on Socioeconomic Goals Some years ago, Professor Henry M. Oliver published an important study, A Logical Analysis of Ethical Goals in Economic Affairs. Professor Kenneth J. Arrow has hailed the work as a pioneer achievement on the road to the axiomatization of a social ethics. 
Unfortunately, this attempted axiomatization is a tissue of logical fallacies. Arrow is correct, however, when he says, it is only when the socio-economic goals have been made clear that we can speak intelligently about the best policies for their achievement. Such clarification has been attempted in the present chapter. It is remarkable what difficulty economists and political philosophers have had in trying to bury laissez-faire. For well over a half-century, laissez-faire thought, both in its natural rights and its utilitarian versions, has been extremely rare in the Western world. And yet, despite the continued proclamation that laissez-faire has been completely discredited, uneasiness has marked the one-sided debate. And so, from time to time, writers have felt obliged to lay the ghost of laissez-faire. The absence of opposition has created a series of faintly worried monologues, rather than a lively two-sided argument. Nevertheless, the attacks continue, and now Professor Oliver has gone to the extent of writing a book almost wholly devoted to an attempted refutation of laissez-faire thought. A. The Attack on Natural Liberty Oliver begins by turning his guns on the natural rights defense of laissez-faire, on the system of natural liberty. He is worried because Americans still seem to cling to this doctrine in underlying theory, if not in actual practice. First, he sets forth various versions of the libertarian position, including the extreme version. A man has a right to do what he will with his own, as well as Spencer's law of equal freedom and the semi-utilitarian position that a man is free to do as he pleases so long as he does not harm someone. The semi-utilitarian position is easiest to attack, and Oliver has no difficulty in showing its vagueness. Harm can be interpreted to cover practically all actions. For example, a hater of the color red can argue that someone else inflicts aesthetic harm upon him by wearing a red coat. Characteristically, Oliver has least patience with the extreme version, which, he contends, is not meant to be interpreted literally, not a seriously reasoned statement, etc. This enables him to shift quickly to attacks on the modified and weaker versions of libertarianism. Yet it is a serious statement, and must be coped with seriously, especially if A is replaced by every in the sentence. Too often, political debate has been short-circuited by someone's blithe comment that you can't really be serious. We have seen that Spencer's law of equal freedom is really a redundant version of the extreme statement, and that the first part implies the proviso clause. The extreme statement permits a more clear-cut presentation, avoiding many of the interpretative pitfalls of the watered-down version. Let us now turn to Oliver's general criticisms of the libertarian position.
Conceding that it has great superficial attractiveness, Oliver levels a series of criticisms that are supposed to demonstrate its illogic. 1. Any demarcation of property restricts liberty, that is, the liberty of others to use these resources. This criticism misuses the term liberty. Obviously, any property right infringes on others' freedom to steal, but we do not even need property rights to establish this limitation. The existence of another person under a regime of liberty restricts the liberty of others to assault him. Yet, by definition, liberty cannot be restricted thereby, because liberty is defined as freedom to control what one owns without molestation by others. Freedom to steal or assault would permit someone, the victim of stealth or assault, to be forcibly or fraudulently deprived of his person or property, and would therefore violate the clause of total liberty, that every man be free to do what he wills with his own. Doing what one wills with someone else's own impairs the other person's liberty. 2. A more important criticism in Oliver's eyes is that natural rights connote a concept of property as consisting in things, and that such a concept eliminates property in intangible rights. Oliver holds that if property is defined as a bundle of things, then all property in rights, such as stocks and bonds, would have to be eliminated. Whereas, if property is defined as rights, insoluble problems arise of defining rights apart from current legal custom. Furthermore, property in rights, divorced from things, allows non-laissez-faire rights to crop up, such as rights in jobs, etc. This is Oliver's primary criticism. This point is a completely fallacious one. Although property is certainly a bundle of physical things, there is no dichotomy between things and rights. In fact, rights are simply rights to things. A share in an oil company is not an intangible floating right. It is a certificate of aliquot ownership in the physical property of the oil company. Similarly, a bond is directly a claim to ownership of a certain amount of money, and in the final analysis is an aliquot ownership in the company's physical property. Rights, except for grants of monopolistic privilege, which would be eliminated in the free society, are simply divisible reflections of physical property. 3. Oliver tries to demonstrate that the libertarian position, however phrased, does not necessarily lead to laissez-faire. As we have indicated, he does this by skipping quickly over the extreme position and concentrating his attack on the unquestionable weaknesses of some of the more qualified formulations. The harm clause of the semi-utilitarians is justly criticized. 
Spencer's law of equal freedom is attacked for its proviso clause and for the alleged vagueness of the phrase infringes on the equal freedom of others. Actually, as we have seen, this proviso is unnecessary and could well be eliminated. Even so, Oliver does considerably less than justice to the Spencerian position. He sets up alternative straw-man definitions of infringement and shows that none of these alternatives leads to strict laissez-faire. A more thorough search would easily have yielded Oliver the proper definition. Of the five alternative definitions he offers, the first simply defines infringement as violation of the customary legal code, a question-begging definition that no rational libertarian would employ. Basing his argument necessarily on principle, the libertarian must fashion his standard by means of reason, and cannot simply adopt existing legal custom. Oliver's fourth and fifth definitions, exercise of control in any form over another person's satisfaction or deeds, are so vague and so question-begging in the use of the word control that no libertarian would ever use them. This leaves the second and third definitions of infringement, in which Oliver manages to skirt any reasonable solution to the problem. The former defines infringement as direct physical interference with another man's control of his person and owned things, and the latter as direct physical interference plus interference in the form of threat of injury. But the former apparently excludes fraud, while the latter not only excludes fraud, but also includes threats to compete with someone else, etc. Since neither definition implies a laissez-faire system, Oliver quickly gives up the task and concludes that the term infringement is hopelessly vague and cannot be used to deduce the laissez-faire concept of freedom, and therefore that laissez-faire needs a special, additional ethical assumption aside from the basic libertarian postulate. Yet a proper definition of infringement can be found in order to arrive at a laissez-faire conclusion. The vague question-begging term injury must not be used. Instead, infringement can be defined as direct physical interference with another man's person or property, or the threat of such physical interference. Contrary to Oliver's assumption, fraud is included in the category of direct physical interference, for such interference means not only the direct use of armed violence, but also such acts as trespass and burglary without use of a weapon. In both cases, violence has been done to someone else's property by physically molesting it. Fraud is implicit theft, because fraud entails the physical appropriation of someone else's property under false pretenses, that is, in exchange for something that is never delivered. In both cases, someone's property is taken from him without his consent. Where there's a will, there's a way. 
and thus we see that it is quite easy to define the Spencerian formula clearly enough so that laissez-faire, and only laissez-faire, follows from it. The important point to remember is never to use such vague expressions as injury, harm, or control, but specific terms, such as physical interference or threats of physical violence. B. The Attack on Freedom of Contract After disposing to his own satisfaction of the basic natural rights postulates, Oliver goes on to attack a specific class of these rights, freedom of contract. Oliver delineates three possible freedom of contract clauses. 1. A man has a right to freedom of contract. 2. A man has a right to freedom of contract unless the terms of the contract harm someone. And 3. A man has a right to freedom of contract unless the terms of the contract infringe upon someone's rights. The second clause can be disposed of immediately. Once again, the vague notion of harm can provide an excuse for unlimited state intervention, as Oliver quickly notes. No libertarian would adopt such a phrasing. The first formulation is, of course, the most uncompromising and leaves no room whatever for state intervention. Here, Oliver again scoffs and says that very few persons would push the freedom of contract doctrine so far. Perhaps, but since when is truth established by majority vote? In fact, the third clause, with its Spencerian proviso, is again unnecessary. Suppose, for example, that A and B freely contract to shoot C. The third version may say that this is an illegal contract, but actually it should not be. For the contract itself does not and cannot violate C's rights. It is only a possible subsequent action against C that will violate his rights. But in that case, it is that action which must be declared illegal and punished, not the preceding contract. The first clause, which provides for absolute freedom of contract, is the clearest and evidently the preferable formulation. In objection to this clause, Oliver states that Anglo-American law traditionally has voided certain types of contract because of the belief that they are against the public interest. It is precisely for this reason that libertarians suggest changing traditional Anglo-American law to conform to their precepts. Furthermore, public interest is a meaningless term, an example of the fallacy of conceptual realism, and is therefore discarded by libertarians. Oliver sees the principle of freedom of contract because of the necessity that there be mutual agreement between two people open to even stronger objection than the basic natural rights postulate. For how, asks Oliver, can we distinguish between a free and voluntary contract on the one hand and fraud and coercion, which void contracts, on the other? First, how can fraud be clearly defined? Oliver's critique here is in two parts. 
One, he says that common law holds that certain types of omissions, as well as certain types of false statements and misleading sections, void contracts. Where is this rule of omission to stop? Oliver sees quite correctly that if no omission at all were allowed, the degree of statism would be enormous. Yet this problem is solved very simply. Change the common law so as to eliminate all rules of omission whatever. It is curious that Oliver is so reluctant even to consider changes in ancient legal customs where these changes seem called for by principle, or to realize that libertarians would advocate such changes. Since libertarians advocate sweeping changes elsewhere in the political structure, there is no reason why they should balk at changing a few clauses of the common law. 2. He states that even rules against false statements seem statist to some people and could be pushed beyond their present limits, and he cites SEC regulations as an example. Yet the whole problem is that a libertarian system could countenance no administrative boards or regulations whatever. No advance regulations could be handed down. On the purely free market, anyone damaged by false statements would take his opponent to court and win redress there. But any false statements, any fraud, would then be punished by the court severely, in the same manner as theft. Secondly, Oliver wants to know how coercion can be defined. Oliver is confused in contradictorily jumbling the definitions of coercion as physical violence and as refusal to exchange. As we have seen, coercion can rationally be defined only as one or the other, not as both, for then the definition is self-contradictory. Further, he confuses physical interpersonal violence with the scarcity imposed by the facts of nature, lumping them both together as coercion. He concludes in the hopelessly muddled assertion that the freedom of contract theory assumes a meaningless equality of coercion among contracting parties. In fact, libertarians assert that there is no coercion at all in the free market. The equality of coercion absurdity permits Oliver to state that true freedom of contract at least requires state-enforced pure competition. The freedom of contract argument, therefore, implies laissez-faire and is also strictly derivable from the postulate of freedom. Contrary to Oliver, no other ethical postulates are necessary to imply laissez-faire from this argument. The coercion problem is completely solved when violence is substituted for the rather misleading term coercion. Then, any contract is free and therefore valid when there has been an absence of violence or threat of violence by either party. Oliver makes a few other attacks on legal liberty. For example, he raises the old slogan that legal liberty does not correspond to actual liberty or effective opportunity.
once again falling into the age-old confusion of freedom with power or abundance. In one of his most provocative statements, he asserts that all men could enjoy complete legal liberty only under a system of anarchy. It is rare for someone to identify a system under law as being anarchy. If this be anarchism, then many libertarians will embrace the term. C. The Attack on Income According to Earnings On the free market, every man obtains money income insofar as he can sell his goods or services for money. Everyone's income will vary in accordance with freely chosen market valuations of his productivity in fulfilling consumer desires. In his comprehensive attack on laissez-faire, Professor Oliver, in addition to criticizing the doctrines of natural liberty and freedom of contract, also condemns this principle, or what he calls the earned income doctrine. Oliver contends that since workers must use capital and land, the right to property cannot rest on what human labor creates. But both capital goods and land are ultimately reducible to labor and time. Capital goods were all built by the original factors, land and labor, and land had to be found by human labor and brought into production by labor. Therefore, not only current labor, but also stored-up labor, or rather stored-up labor and time, earn money in current production, and so there is as much reason why the owners of these resources should obtain money now as there is that current laborers earn money now. The right of past labor to earn is established by the right of bequest, which stems immediately from the right of property. The right of inheritance rests not so much on the right of later generations to receive as on the right of earlier generations to bestow. With these general considerations in mind, we may turn to some of Oliver's detailed criticisms. First, he states the basic earned income principle incorrectly, and this is a standing source of confusion. He phrases it thus, A man acquires a right to income which he himself creates. Incorrect. He acquires the right not to income, but to the property that he himself creates. The importance of this distinction will become clear presently. A man has the right to his own product, to the product of his energy, which immediately becomes his property. He derives his money income by exchanging this property, this product of his or his ancestors' energy, for money. His goods or services are freely exchanged on the market for money. His income is therefore completely determined by the monetary valuation that the market places on his goods or services. Much of Oliver's subsequent criticism stems from ignoring the fact that all complementary resources are founded on the labor of individuals. 
He also decries the idea that if a man makes something, it is his as very simple. Simple it may be, but that should not be a pejorative term in science. On the contrary, the principle of Occam's razor tells us that the simpler a truth is, the better. The criterion of a statement, therefore, is its truth, and simplicity is, ceteris paribus, a virtue. The point is that when a man makes something, it belongs either to him or to someone else. To whom, then, shall it belong? To the producer, or to someone who has stolen it from the producer? Perhaps this is a simple choice, but a necessary one nevertheless. Yet how can we tell when a person has made something or not? Oliver worries considerably about this question, and criticizes the marginal productivity theory at length. Aside from the fallacies of his objections, the marginal productivity theory is not at all necessary, although it is helpful, to this ethical discussion. For the criterion to be used in determining who has made the product on the market, and who should therefore earn the money, is really very simple. The criterion is, who owns the product? A spends his labor energy working in a factory. This contribution of labor energy to further production is bought and paid for by factory owner B. A owns labor energy, which is hired by B. In this case, the product made by A is his energy, and its use is paid for or hired by B. B hires various factors to work on his capital, and the capital is finally transformed into another product and sold to C. The product belongs to B, and B exchanges it for money. The money that B obtains, over and above the amount that he had to pay for other factors of production, represents B's contribution to the product. The amount that his capital received goes to B, its owner, etc. Oliver also believes it a criticism when he states that men do not really make goods, but add value to them by applying labor. But no one denies this. Man does not create matter, just as he does not create land. Rather, he takes this natural matter and transforms it in a series of processes to arrive at more useful goods. He hopes to add value by transforming matter. To say this is to strengthen rather than weaken the earnings theory, since it should be clear that how much value is added in producing goods for exchange can be determined only by the purchases of customers, ultimately the consumers. Oliver betrays his confusion by asserting that the earning theory assumes that the values which we receive in exchange are equal in worth to those which we create in the production process. Certainly not. There are no actual values created in the production process. These values take on meaning only from the values we receive in exchange. 
We cannot compare received and created values because created property becomes valuable only to the extent that it is purchased in exchange. Here we see some of the fruits of Oliver's fundamental confusion between creating income and creating a product. People do not create income; they create a product, which they hope can be exchanged for income by being useful to consumers. Oliver compounds his confusion by next taking up the laissez-faire theorem that everyone has the right to his own value scale and to act on that value scale. Instead of stating this principle in these terms, Oliver introduces confusion by calling it placing values on an equal footing for each man. Consequently, he can then criticize this approach by asking how people's values can have an equal footing when one person's purchasing power is more than another's, etc. The reader will have no difficulty in seeing the confusion here between equality of liberty and equality of abundance. Another of Oliver's critical objections to the earned income theory is that it assumes that all values are gained through purchase and sale; that all goods are those of the marketplace. This is nonsense, and no responsible economist ever assumed it. In fact, no one denies that there are non-marketable, non-exchangeable goods, such as friendship, love, and religion. And that many men value these goods very highly; they must constantly choose how to allocate their resources between exchangeable and non-exchangeable goods. This causes not the slightest difficulty for the free market or for the earned income doctrine. In fact, a man earns money in exchange for his exchangeable goods. What could be more reasonable? A man acquires his income by selling exchangeable goods at market. So naturally, the money he acquires will be determined by the buyer's evaluations of these goods. How indeed can he ever acquire exchangeable goods in return for his pursuit or offer of non-exchangeables? And why should he? Why and how will others be forced to pay money for nothing in return? And how will the government determine who has produced what non-exchangeable goods and what the reward or penalty shall be? When Oliver states that market earnings are unsatisfactory because they do not cover non-market production as well. He fails to indicate why non-marketable goods should enter the picture at all. Why should not marketable goods pay for marketable goods? Oliver's statement that non-market receipts are hardly distributed so as to solve the non-market part of the problem makes little sense. What in the world are non-market receipts? And if they are not inner satisfaction from inner pursuits by the individual, what in the world are they? If Oliver suggests taking money from A to pay B, then he is suggesting the seizure of a marketable good, and the receipts are then quite marketable. 
But if he is not suggesting this, then his remarks are quite irrelevant, and he can say nothing against the earned income principle. Also, it should not be overlooked that all those on the market who wish to reward non-marketable contributions with money are free to do so. In fact, in the free society, such rewards will be effected to the maximum degree freely desired in it. We have seen that the marginal productivity theory is not necessary to an ethical solution. A man's property is his product, and this will be sold at its estimated worth to consumers on the market. The market solves the problem of estimating worth, and better than any coercive agency or economist could. If Oliver disagrees with market verdicts on the marginal value productivity of any factor, he is hereby invited to become an entrepreneur and to earn the profits that come from exposing such maladjustments. Oliver's problems are pseudo-problems. Thus he asks, when white's cotton is exchanged for brown's wheat, what is the ethically correct ratio of exchange? Simple, answers the free market doctrine, whatever the two freely decide. When Jones and Smith together produce a good, what part of that good is attributable to Jones' actions and what part to Smith's? The answer, whatever they have mutually contracted. Oliver gives several fallacious reasons for rejecting the marginal productivity theory. One is that income imputation does not imply income creation because a laborer's marginal product can be altered merely by a change in the quantity or quality of a complementary factor or by a variation in the number of competing laborers. Once again, Oliver's confusion stems from talking about income creation instead of product creation. The laborer creates his labor service. This is his property, his to sell at whatever market he wishes, or not to sell, if he so desires. The appraised worth of this service depends on his marginal value product, which, of course, depends partly on competition and the number or quality of complementary factors. This, in fact, does not confound, but rather is an integral part of marginal productivity theory. If the supply of cooperating capital increases, a laborer's energy service becomes scarcer in relation to the complementary factors, land, capital, and his marginal value product and income increase. Similarly, if there are more competing laborers, there may be a tendency for a laborer's DMVP to decline, although it may increase because of the wider extent of the market. It is beside the point to say that all this is not fair because his service output remains the same. The point is that, to the consumers, his worth in production varies in accordance with these other factors, and he is paid accordingly. 
Oliver also employs the popular but completely fallacious doctrine that any ethical sense to the marginal productivity theory must rely on the existence of pure competition. But why should the marginal value product of a freely competitive economy be any less ethical than the value of the marginal product of the never-never land of pure competition? Oliver adopts Joan Robinson's doctrine that entrepreneurs exploit the factors and reap a special exploitation gain. But on the contrary, as Professor Chamberlain has conceded, no one reaps any exploitation in the world of free competition. Oliver makes several other interesting criticisms. One, he maintains that marginal productivity cannot apply within corporations because no market for a firm's capital exists after the initial establishment of the company. Hence, the directors can rule the stockholders. In rebuttal, we may ask how the directors can remain directors without representing the wishes of the majority of stockholders. The capital market is continuing because capital values are constantly shifting on the stock market. A sharp decline in stock values means grave losses for the owners of the company. Furthermore, it means that there will be no further capital expansion in that firm, and that its capital may not even be maintained intact. 2. He maintains that the marginal productivity theory cannot account for the lumpy, fixed contribution to all incomes of the services supplied by the state. In the first place, marginal productivity theory does not at all, in its proper form, assume, as Oliver believes, that factors are infinitely divisible. Any lumps can be taken care of. The problem of the state, therefore, has really nothing to do with lumpy factors. Indeed, all factors are more or less lumpy. Furthermore, Oliver concedes that the services of the state are divisible. In one of his rare flashes of insight, Oliver admits that there can be and are varying degrees of police, military, and monetary, for example, mint services. But if that is the case, how do state services differ from any other? The difference is indeed great, but it stems from a fact we have reiterated many times, that the state is a compulsory monopoly in which payment is separated from receipt of service. As long as this condition exists, there can indeed be no market measure of its marginal productivity. But how can this be an argument against the free market? Indeed, it is precisely the free market that would correct this condition. Oliver's criticism here is not of the free market, but of the statist sphere of a mixed statist market economy. Oliver's attribution of income creation to organized society is very vague. If by this he means society, he is using a meaningless phrase. 
It is precisely the process of the market by which the array of free individuals constituting society portions out income in accordance with productivity. It is double counting to postulate a real entity, society, outside the array of individuals and possessing or not possessing its own deserved share. If by organized society he means the state, then the state's contributions were compulsory and hence hardly deserved any pay. Furthermore, since, as we have shown, total taxation is far greater than any alleged productive contribution of the state, the rulers owe the rest of society money rather than vice versa. 3. Oliver makes the curious assertion, also made repeatedly by Frank Knight, that a man does not really deserve ethically to reap the earnings from his own unique ability. I must confess that I cannot make any sense of this position. What is more inherent in an individual, more uniquely his own, than his inherited ability? If he is not to reap the reward from this, conjoined with his own willed effort, what should he reap a reward from? And why, then, should someone else reap a reward from his unique ability? Why, in short, should the able be consistently penalized and the unable consistently subsidized? Oliver's attribution of such ability to some mystical first cause will make sense only when someone is able to find the first cause and pay it its deserved share. Until then, any attempt to redistribute income from A to B would have to imply that B is the first cause. 4. Oliver confuses private, voluntary charity and grants in aid with compulsory charity or grants. Thus, he misdefines the earned income free market doctrine as saying that a person should support himself and his legitimate dependents without asking for special favors or calling upon outside parties for aid. While many individualists would accept this formulation, the true free market doctrine is that no person may coerce others into giving him aid. It makes all the difference in the world whether the aid is given voluntarily or is stolen by force. As a corollary, Oliver confuses the meaning of power and asserts that employers have power over employees and therefore should be responsible for the latter's welfare. Oliver is quite right when he says that the slave master was responsible for his slave's subsistence. But he doesn't seem to realize that only the re-establishment of slavery would fit his program for labor relations. To say that the feeble-minded or orphans are wards, as Oliver does, leads to his confusion between wards of society and wards of the state. The two are completely different, because the two institutions are not the same. 
The concept of ward of society reflects the libertarian principle that private individuals and voluntary groups may offer to care for those who desire such care. Wards of the state, on the contrary, are those a to whose care everyone is compelled by violence to contribute. And b, who are subject to state dictation, whether they like it or not. Oliver's conclusion that every normal adult should have a fair chance to support himself, and in the absence of this opportunity, he should be supported by the state, is a melange of logical fallacies. What is a fair chance, and how can it be defined? Further, in contrast to Spencer's law of equal freedom, or to our suggested law of total freedom, every cannot here be fulfilled, since there is no such real entity as the state. Any one supported by the state must, ipso facto, be supported by some one else in the society. Therefore, not every one can be supported. Especially, of course, if we define fair chance as the absence of interference or coercive penalizing of a person's ability. Five, Oliver realizes that some earned income theorists combine their doctrines with a finder's keepers theory, but he can find no underlying principle here and calls it merely an accepted rule of the business game. Yet finders keepers is not only based on principle; it is just as much a corollary of the underlying postulates of a regime of liberty as is the earned income theory. For an unowned resource should, according to basic property rights doctrine, become owned by whoever, through his efforts, brings this resource into productive use. This is the finders keepers or first user first owner principle. It is the only theory consistent with the abolition of theft, including government ownership, so that every useful resource is always owned by some non-thief. Oliver often cites in his support the essay of Frank H. Knight, "Freedom as Fact and Criterion." There is no need to elaborate further on Knight's essay, except to note his attack on Spencer for adopting both psychological hedonism and ethical hedonism. Without analyzing Spencer in detail, we can, by a proper interpretation, make very good sense of combining both positions. First, it is necessary to change hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. To eudemonism, the pursuit of happiness. Second, psychological eudemonism, the view that every individual universally and necessarily seeks his own maximum happiness, follows from the praxeological axiom of human action. From the fact of purpose, this truth follows. But only when happiness is interpreted in a formal, categorical, and ex ante sense—that is, happiness here means whatever the individual chooses to rank highest on his value scale.
ethical eudaemonism that an individual should seek his maximum happiness can also be held by the same theorist when happiness is here interpreted in a substantive and ex-post sense, that is, that each individual should pursue that course which will, as a consequence, make him happier. To illustrate, a man may be an alcoholic, the eudemonist may make these two pronouncements. 1. A is pursuing that course which he most prefers, psychological eudemonism. And 2. A is injuring his happiness, this judgment being based on happiness rules derived from the study of the nature of man, and therefore should reduce his alcohol intake to the point that his happiness is no longer impaired, ethical eudaemonism. The two are perfectly compatible positions. Chapter 7. Conclusion. Economics and Public Policy. 1. Economics, Its Nature and Its Uses. Economics provides us with true laws of the type if A, then B, then C, etc. Some of these laws are true all the time, that is, A always holds, the law of diminishing marginal utility, time preference, etc. Others require A to be established as true before the consequence can be affirmed in practice, the person who identifies economic laws in practice and uses them to explain complex economic fact is then acting as an economic historian rather than as an economic theorist. He is an historian when he seeks the causal explanation of past facts. He is a forecaster when he attempts to predict future facts. In either case, he uses absolutely true laws, but must determine when any particular law applies to a given situation. Furthermore, the laws are necessarily qualitative rather than quantitative, and hence, when the forecaster attempts to make quantitative predictions, he is going beyond the knowledge provided by economic science. It has not often been realized that the functions of the economist on the free market differ sharply from those of the economist on the hampered market. What can the economist do on the purely free market? He can explain the workings of the market economy, a vital task, especially since the untutored person tends to regard the market economy as sheer chaos but he can do little else. Contrary to the pretensions of many economists, he is of little aid to the businessman. He cannot forecast future consumer demands and future costs as well as the businessman. If he could, then he would be the businessman. The entrepreneur is where he is precisely because of his superior forecasting ability on the market. The pretensions of econometricians and other model builders that they can precisely forecast the economy will always founder on the simple but devastating query, 
If you can forecast so well, why are you not doing so on the stock market, where accurate forecasting reaps such rich rewards? It is beside the point to dismiss such a query, as many have done, by calling it anti-intellectual, for this is precisely the acid test of the would-be economic oracle. Professor Mises has shown the fallacy of the very popular term model-building, which has, with so many other scientific fallacies, been taken over misleadingly by analogy from the physical sciences, in this case, engineering. The engineering model furnishes the exact quantitative dimensions in proportionate miniature of the real world, no economic model can do anything of the kind. In recent years, new mathematico-statistical disciplines have developed, such as operations research and linear programming, which have professed to help the businessman make his concrete decisions. If these claims are valid, then such disciplines are not economics at all, but a sort of management technology. Fortunately, operations research has developed into a frankly separate discipline with its own professional society and journal. We hope that all other such movements will do the same. The economist is not a business technologist. The economist's role in a free society, then, is purely educational. But when government or any other agency using violence intervenes in the market, the usefulness of the economist expands. The reason is that no one knows, for example, what future consumer demands in some line will be. Here, in the realm of the free market, the economist must give way to the entrepreneurial forecaster. But government actions are very different because the problem now is precisely what the consequences of governmental acts will be. In short, the economist may be able to tell what the effects of an increased demand for butter will be, but this is of little practical use, since the businessman is primarily interested not in this chain of consequences, which he knows well enough for his purposes, but in whether or not such an increase will take place. For a governmental decision, on the other hand, the whether is precisely what the citizenry must decide. So here the economist, with his knowledge of the various alternative consequences, comes into his own. Furthermore, the consequences of a governmental act, being indirect, are much more difficult to analyze than the consequences of an increase in consumer demand for a product. Longer chains of praxeological reasoning are required, particularly for the needs of the decision-makers. The consumer's decision to purchase butter and the entrepreneur's decision about entering into the butter business do not require praxeological reasoning, but rather insight into the concrete data. The judging and evaluation of a governmental act, for example, an income tax, however, require long chains of praxeological reasoning. 
Hence, for two reasons, because the initial data are here supplied to him, and because the consequences must be analytically explored, the economist is far more useful as a political economist than as a business advisor or technologist. In a hampered market economy, indeed, the economist often becomes useful to the businessman, where chains of economic reasoning become important, for example, in analyzing the effects of credit expansion or an income tax, and in many cases in spreading this knowledge to the outside world. The political economist, in fact, is indispensable to any citizen who frames ethical judgments in politics. Economics can never by itself supply ethical dicta, but it does furnish existential laws that cannot be ignored by anyone framing ethical conclusions just as no one can rationally decide whether product X is a good or a bad food until its consequences on the human body are ascertained and taken into account. 2. Implicit Moralizing – The Failures of Welfare Economics as we have reiterated, economics cannot by itself establish ethical judgments, and it can and should be developed in a wertfrei manner. This is true whether we adopt the modern disjunction between fact and value, or whether we adhere to the classical philosophical tradition that there can be a science of ethics. For even if there can be, economics may not by itself establish it. Yet economics, especially of the modern welfare variety, is filled with implicit moralizing, with unanalyzed ad hoc ethical statements that are either silently or under elaborate camouflage slipped into the deductive system. Elsewhere we have analyzed many of these attempts, for example, the old and the new welfare economics. Interpersonal utility comparisons, the compensation principle, the social welfare function, are typical examples. We have also seen the absurdity of the search for criteria of just taxation before the justice of taxation itself has been proven. Other instances of illegitimate moralizing are the doctrine that product differentiation harms consumers by raising prices and restricting production, a doctrine based on the false assumptions that consumers do not want these differences and that costs remain the same. The spurious proof that, given the total tax bill, the income tax is better for consumers than excise taxes, and the mythical distinction between social cost and private cost. Neither can economists legitimately adopt the popular method of maintaining ethical neutrality while pronouncing on policy that is, taking not their own, but the community's values, or those they attribute to the community, and simply advising others how to attain these ends. An ethical judgment is an ethical judgment, no matter who or how many people make it. 
it does not relieve the economist of the responsibility for having made ethical judgments to plead that he has borrowed them from others. The economist who calls for egalitarian measures because the people want more equality is no longer strictly an economist. He has abandoned ethical neutrality, and he abandons it not a whit more if he calls for equality simply because he wants it so. Value judgments remain only value judgments. They receive no special sanctification by virtue of the number of their adherents, and uncritically adhering to all the prevailing ethical judgments is simply to engage in apologetics for the status quo. I do not at all mean to deprecate value judgments. Men do and must always make them. But I do say that the injection of value judgments takes us beyond the bounds of economics per se and into another realm, the realm of rational ethics or personal whim, depending on one's philosophic convictions. The economist, of course, is a technician who explains the consequences of various actions. But he cannot advise a man on the best route to achieve certain ends without committing himself to those ends. An economist hired by a businessman implicitly commits himself to the ethical valuation that increasing that businessman's profits is good. Although, as we have seen, the economist's role in business would be negligible on the free market. An economist advising the government on the most efficient way of rapidly influencing the money market is thereby committing himself to the desirability of government manipulation of that market. The economist cannot function as an advisor without committing himself to the desirability of the ends of his clients. The utilitarian economist tries to escape this policy dilemma by assuming that everyone's ends are really the same, at least ultimately. If everyone's ends are the same, then an economist, by showing that policy A cannot lead to goal G, is justified in saying that A is a bad policy, since everyone values A in order to achieve G. Thus, if two groups argue over price controls, the utilitarian tends to assume that the proven consequences of maximum price controls—shortages, disruptions, etc.—will make the policy bad from the point of view of the advocates of the legislation. Yet the advocates may favor price controls anyway for other reasons—love of power, the building of a political machine and its consequent patronage, desire to injure the masses, etc. It is certainly overly sanguine to assume that everyone's ends are the same, and therefore the utilitarian shortcut to policy conclusions is also inadequate. It is probably true, of course, that general knowledge of these consequences of price control would considerably reduce social support for this measure, but this is a politico-psychological, not a praxeological statement. 
3. Economics and Social Ethics If the economist qua economist must be Wertfrei, does this leave him any room for significant pronouncements on questions of public policy? Superficially, it would seem not, but this entire work has been testimony to the contrary. Briefly, the Wertfrei economist can do two things— One, he can engage in a praxeological critique of inconsistent and meaningless ethical programs, as we have tried to show in the preceding chapter, and two, he can explicate analytically all the myriad consequences of different political systems and different methods of government intervention. In the former task, we have seen that many prominent ethical critiques of the market are inconsistent or meaningless, whereas attempts to prove the same errors in regard to the ethical underpinnings of a free society are shown to be fallacious. In the latter role, the economist has an enormous part to play. He can analyze the consequences of the free market and of various systems of coerced and hampered exchange. One of the conclusions of this analysis is that the purely free market maximizes social utility because every participant in the market benefits from his voluntary participation. On the free market, every man gains— One man's gain, in fact, is precisely the consequence of his bringing about the gain of others. When an exchange is coerced, on the other hand, when criminals or governments intervene, one group gains at the expense of others. On the free market, everyone earns according to his productive value in satisfying consumer desires. Under status distribution, everyone earns in proportion to the amount he can plunder from the producers. The market is an interpersonal relation of peace and harmony. Statism is a relation of war and caste conflict. Not only do earnings on the free market correspond to productivity, but freedom also permits a continually enlarged market with a wider division of labor, investment to satisfy future wants, and increased living standards. Moreover, the market permits the ingenious device of capitalist calculation, a calculation necessary to the efficient and productive allocation of the factors of production. Socialism cannot calculate, and hence must either shift to a market economy or revert to a barbaric standard of living after its plunder of the pre-existing capital structure has been exhausted. And every intermixture of government ownership or interference in the market distorts the allocation of resources and introduces islands of calculational chaos into the economy. Government taxation and grants of monopolistic privilege, which take many subtle forms, all hamper market adjustments and lower general living standards. 
government inflation not only must injure half the population for the benefit of the other half, but may also lead to a business cycle depression or collapse of the currency. We cannot outline here the entire analysis of this volume. Suffice it to say that in addition to the praxeological truth that, one, under a regime of freedom everyone gains, whereas, two, under statism, some gain, x, at the expense of others, y, we can say something else. For in all these cases, x is not a pure gainer. The indirect, long-run consequences of his statist privilege will redound to what he would generally consider his disadvantage, the lowering of living standards, capital consumption, etc. X's exploitation gain, in short, is clear and obvious to everyone. His future loss, however, can be comprehended only by praxeological reasoning. A prime function of the economist is to make this clear to all the potential X's of the world. I would not join with some utilitarian economists in saying that this settles the matter, and that since we are all agreed on ultimate ends, X will be bound to change his position and support a free society. It is certainly conceivable that X's high time preferences, or his love of power or plunder, will lead him to the path of statist exploitation, even when he knows all the consequences. In short, the man who is about to plunder is already familiar with the direct, immediate consequences. When praxeology informs him of the longer-run consequences, this information may often count in the scales against the action, but it may also not be enough to tip the scales. Furthermore, some may prefer these long-run consequences. Thus, the OPA director who finds that maximum price controls lead to shortages may, one, say that shortages are bad and resign, two, say that shortages are bad but give more weight to other considerations, for example, love of power or plunder or his high time preference, or three, believe that shortages are good either out of hatred for others or from an ascetic ethic. And from the standpoint of praxeology, any of these positions may well be adopted without saying him nay. 4. The Market Principle and the Hegemonic Principle Praxeological analysis of comparative politico-economic systems can be starkly summed up in the following way. Some Consequences of the Market Principle Individual Freedom General Mutual Benefit Maximized Social Utility Mutual Harmony Peace Power of Man over Nature Most Efficient Satisfaction of Consumer Wants Economic Calculation Incentives for Production and Advance in Living Standards some consequences of the hegemonic principle. Coercion. Exploitation. Benefit of one group at expense of another. 
Caste Conflict, War of All Against All War, Power of Man Over Man, Disruption of Want Satisfaction Calculational Chaos, Destruction of Incentives Capital Consumption and Regression of Living Standards The listener will undoubtedly ask, how can all the various systems be reduced to such a simple two-valued schema? Does not this grossly distort the rich complexity of political systems? On the contrary, this dichotomy is a crucial one. No one disputes the fact that, historically, political systems have differed in degree, that they have never been pure examples of the market or of the hegemonic principle. But these mixtures can be analyzed only by breaking them down into their components, their varying blends of the two polar principles. On Crusoe's and Friday's island, there are basically two types of interpersonal relations or exchanges, the free or voluntary and the coerced or hegemonic. There is no other type of social relation. Every time a free, peaceful unit act of exchange occurs, the market principle has been put into operation. Every time a man coerces an exchange by the threat of violence, the hegemonic principle has been put to work. All the shadings of society are mixtures of these two primary elements. The more the market principle prevails in a society, therefore, the greater will be that society's freedom and its prosperity— The more the hegemonic principle abounds, the greater will be the extent of slavery and poverty. There is a further reason for the aptness of this polar analysis, for it is a peculiarity of hegemony that every coercive intervention in human affairs brings about further problems that call for the choice, repeal the initial intervention or add another one. It is this feature that makes any mixed economy inherently unstable, tending always toward one or the other polar opposite, pure freedom or total statism. It does not suffice to reply that the world has always been in the middle anyway, so why worry? The point is that no zone in the middle is stable because of its own self-created problems its own inner contradictions, as a Marxist would say. And the result of these problems is to push the society inexorably in one direction or the other. The problems, in fact, are recognized by everyone, regardless of his value system or the means he proposes for meeting the situation. What happens if socialism is established? Stability is not reached there either because of the poverty, calculational chaos, etc., which socialism brings about. Socialism may continue a long time if, as under a primitive caste system, the people believe that the system is divinely ordained, or if partial and incomplete socialism in one or a few countries can rely on the foreign market for calculation. 
Does all this mean that the purely free economy is the only stable system? Praxeologically, yes. Psychologically, the issue is in doubt. The unhampered market is free of self-created economic problems. It furnishes the greatest abundance consistent with man's command over nature at any given time. But those who yearn for power over their fellows, or who wish to plunder others, as well as those who fail to comprehend the praxeological stability of the free market, may well push the society back on the hegemonic road. To return to the cumulative nature of intervention, we may cite as a classic example the modern American farm program. In 1929, the government began to support artificially the prices of some farm commodities above their market price. This, of course, brought about unsold surpluses of these commodities, surpluses aggravated by the fact that farmers shifted production out of other lines to enter the now guaranteed high-price fields. Thus, the consumer paid four ways— once in taxes to subsidize the farmers, a second time in the higher prices of farm products, a third time in the wasted surpluses, and a fourth time in the deprivation of foregone products in the unsupported lines of production. But the farm surplus was a problem, recognized as such by people with all manner of value systems. What to do about it? The farm program could have been repealed, but such a course would hardly have been compatible with the status doctrines that had brought about the support program in the first place. So, the next step was to clamp maximum production controls on the farmers who produced the supported products. The controls had to be set up as quotas for each farm, grounded on production in some past base period, which, of course, cast farm production in a rapidly obsolescing mold. The quota system bolstered the inefficient farmers and shackled the efficient ones, paid, in effect, not to produce certain products, and, ironically, these have invariably been what the government considers the essential products the farmers naturally shifted to producing other products. The lower prices of the non-supported products set up the same clamor for support there. The next plan, again a consequence of statist logic at work, was to avoid these embarrassing shifts of production by creating a soil bank whereby the government paid the farmer to make sure that the land remained completely idle. This policy deprived the consumers of even the substitute farm products. The result of the soil bank was readily predictable. Farmers put into the soil bank their poorest lands and tilled the remaining ones more intensively thus greatly increasing their output on the better lands and continuing the surplus problem as much as ever. The main difference was that the farmers then received government checks for not producing anything.
The cumulative logic of intervention is demonstrated in many other areas. For instance, government subsidization of poverty increases poverty and unemployment and encourages the beneficiaries to multiply their offspring, thus further intensifying the problem that the government set out to cure. Government outlawing of narcotics addiction greatly raises the price of narcotics, driving addicts to crime to obtain the money. There is no need to multiply examples. They can be found in all phases of government intervention. The point is that the free market economy forms a kind of natural order, so that any interventionary disruption creates not only disorder, but the necessity for repeal or for cumulative disorder in attempting to combat it. In short, Proudhon wrote wisely when he called liberty the mother, not the daughter, of order. Hegemonic intervention substitutes chaos for that order. Such are the laws that praxeology presents to the human race. They are a binary set of consequences, the workings of the market principle and of the hegemonic principle. The former breeds harmony, freedom, prosperity, and order. The latter produces conflict, coercion, poverty, and chaos. Such are the consequences between which mankind must choose. In effect, it must choose between the society of contract and the society of status. At this point, the praxeologist as such retires from the scene. The citizen, the ethicist, must now choose according to the set of values or ethical principles he holds dear.